From Share Profits, coming to you from Wales by 30 yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, Episode 8, for Wednesday, the 4th of September, 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifrith. Hi, this is indeed Tom Winifrith, coming to you from Wales, albeit only by 30 yards, with the 8th edition of Share Profits Radio, and it will be our longest yet. There are three interviews today. The first and the longest is with Dominic Frisby, uh, who is a comedian, a singer-songwriter, a libertarian, uh, an expert on gold, and an expert on Bitcoin. He's not an expert on Neil Woodford, as we discovered during the podcast, but he is an expert on many other things. And he's a thoroughly entertaining uh, chap. Uh, I tried to uh, uh, quiz him on a number of subjects, and I hope you get at least get a laugh as well as some information. Uh, one thing that I really take from that interview... Oh, Let's not spoil the surprise. Uh, You'll get that later. Then we have two CEOs. As a reminder, we don't charge CEOs to appear on this show. Uh, I don't think that business model works. If you want uh, shows that charge CEOs to appear, go to Vox Markets. Uh, Because the relationship is essentially uh, that between uh, the prostitute and the client, uh, the questions do tend to be along the lines of, is your dick enormous uh, or ginormous? Uh, And uh, how fragrant does it smell? Uh, There's easy questions. They're soft questions. You learn nothing from them. Uh, 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 The CEOs who appear here are ones who interest me or whose companies interest me. And we have two this week. Uh, The first is Cathal Friel of Open Orphan. I should declare I own shares in that company. Uh, The share price, as I speak, is about 6p. Uh, If they got to 10p, I certainly would be, I think, tempted to sell. Uh, 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 10p plus is where I'd look to sell. I think they're cheap now. Uh, But uh, I give no guarantees that when they get into double figures... I will still be on the shareholder register. Anyhow, Cathal has a pretty exciting story. Uh, and the other one is David Bramhill of Union Jackal uh, Oil, uh, who's making his second appearance on the show. Uh, and we discuss uh, West Newton and other matters. I hope you think I gave him a hard time. That is the job of an interviewer to give his guest a hard time. Uh, Next week's show could be our most controversial yet. I have a tentative agreement from Carson Block, uh, uh, the man behind Muddy Waters, to come on the show. Uh, I hope we can get that organised. That would be, I would have thought, a thoroughly entertaining interview and highly topical in the context of Burford. Until recently, the biggest company on the AIM casino. That mantle, the biggest company on the AIM casino, uh, it doesn't always uh, uh, herald that the company is a great investment going forward. Think Quindell, for example. Uh, Indeed, Boohoo had that title for a while, or maybe it still does have that title. Uh, But it hasn't been a cracking investment over the past couple of years. Uh, but it's certainly been a better investment than Quindell was and Burford was. Um, without wishing to seem unduly conceited, OK, I'm seeing, feeling fairly conceited, uh, uh, whilst Muddy Walkers gave Burford a thoroughly good shoeing uh, two or three weeks ago, 
uh, he wasn't the first, or Carson Block wasn't the first to highlight problems. Our own Nigel Somerville uh, was in there back in May uh, with a damning piece on the company. And this website, or Share Profits, the website where this podcast uh, uh, originates from, has been sceptical on Burford for a good while. Over the past couple of weeks, it has been us who has been making the running, forcing disclosure uh, on this NAPO case in 2013, a case uh, which, without which the company would have reported a loss as opposed to a profit. Uh, the fact that it was able to report a profit was kind of handy. <coughs> Excuse me, because two weeks after reporting the profit, the company got away a major bond issue. Uh, We've also highlighted another case uh, 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 just uh, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, where again, the issue of revenue recognition is all too critical. With revenue recognition, revenue recognition is where you always get companies which are either frauds, and I don't believe that Burford is a fraud, uh, or grotesquely over-promoted stocks coming a cropper. Uh, why would Burford's management want to over-promote the stock and uh, ramp the share price up? Well, because it's allowed them to get away equity issues. Uh, bond issues have been made more simple by the fact that the equity price has been going through the roof. And of course, the management has been able to sell more than 50 million quid's worth of shares. So it's been in their interest to promote the stock price. And uh, as with all promotes, it often comes down to revenue recognition. In the case of uh, 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 most overpromotes, the issue of revenue recognition is companies booking revenue in period A when really it should have been booked in a subsequent period uh, or or a period uh, uh, following period A, i.e. bringing forward revenues and therefore inflating profits and earnings. That is not what Burford stands accused of. Uh, Well, it does to a certain extent. It will book revenues on cases which are progressing. Uh, before they reach a verdict because it feels that it's making progress. That's a little bit aggressive. Uh, What what Burford also stands accused of is booking revenues where actually it shouldn't. In the case of NAPO, it booked revenues uh, uh, on NAPO even though NAPO lost the case. The idea of litigation funding is you book revenues when your clients win cases, but NAPO lost. Uh, nonetheless, uh, 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 Burford booked the revenues. But there is a third element to revenue recognition, which is the actual collectability of those revenues. It is all very well me billing uh, Nigel Ray for £100. Nigel Ray is good for his money. If I, on the other hand, were to bill my technical assistant, my Canadian friend Darren Atwater, for a million pounds, uh, that would be suspect. I would expect our auditors to rule it out because, no offence to Darren, he doesn't have a million pounds. He has an awful lot less than that. Therefore, I would not allow our auditors to, uh, I think I would hope that our auditors, which show professional scepticism, and not book that sum as revenue. Uh, 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 But in the case of Burford, that happens time and time again. Uh, In the case of the NAPO case in 2013, NAPO was technically insolvent. Uh, The company uh, reduced the amount it was billing it from $30 million to $15 million on the basis that it was insolvent. But if you're insolvent, uh, even $15 million is $15 million too high. The other case we highlighted on share profits and brought to everyone's attention uh, uh, concerned a company which, again, had no cash. It had some land. Uh, the revenues were booked back in 2012, but only in 2016 
uh, did Burford manage not to sell the land, but to sell a promissory note against the land? Again, that's revenue. That's very, very aggressive revenue recognition. And of course, these are just the cases we've discovered. Burford has funded hundreds of cases. Uh, what's the betting that there are more cases of this nature where the question of revenue recognition is very uh, is at least a grey issue, not a black and white issue. There are at least more uh, more of these cases waiting to come out of the Pandora's box. All of this makes Burford both uninvestable but also terribly interesting. And that's why I hope that Carson will be on the show next week. As I mentioned earlier, uh, this show is not funded by companies paying to appear and get easy questions. That's the business model of Vox Markets and others, LSE Share Talk, uh, and other shows you don't want to waste your time listening to. Because frankly, if the questions for CEOs are easy, uh, what do you learn uh, from hearing the answers? So that's not our business model. And of course, the show is free to listen to. So uh, it's very good to welcome so many listeners. Uh, this show is only possible thanks to the sponsorship of companies which are kind enough to support the valid work we do on share profits. And today's sponsor is Yorkville Advisors uh, LLC, an American company which also operates in the UK. Uh, it provides uh, uh, loans and convertible loans uh, to a range of listed companies. I know folks uh, often just characterize this as death spiral funding. It's not. Uh, there's a whole category of asset finding, of alternative asset financing out there. There are some players out there who are sharks. Uh, and if you know they're involved, you know that they will make an awful lot of money and the company's share price will be crucified. I don't believe that is the case with Yorkville. Yorkville has been operating now for 18 years. Uh, uh, it has a benefit that someone once complained about it to the SEC. The SEC did a full investigation and found that it was squeaky clean. It has a clean bill of health. I suspect that many of the firms operating in this space would not survive such a forensic audit. So it is one of the best of breed uh, 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 companies in this space. Uh, I've known the principals uh, for an awfully long time. Uh, and they're good fellows, and that's why I'm very happy for Yorkville to be the sponsor uh, of this particular uh, show. Thank you very much to them for their sponsorship. And now let's crack on uh, with some difficult questions for my first guest. My first guest today is Dominic Frisbee. When I first met him, he was a comedian, but also a guru on all things gold. He explained why gold was going to go through the roof. Uh, he then became a Bitcoin guru. Uh, he continued to write very serious stuff. Uh, his comedy has somehow taken second stage to his singing. He has a new album out, Libertarian Love Songs. He had a highly successful editor, uh, Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, I've played uh, a couple of his songs. Uh, the recent one, Hate Crime, is a classic. Uh, but the one which got him most prominence was 17.4 million fuck-offs, the song about Brexit. And indeed, Dominic is now a Brexit party candidate for Parliament. Well, a man of many parts. Dominic, um, you're a libertarian, right? I am. OK, so you live in London, whereas uh, I read in the newspapers, uh, uh, someone gets stabbed every 10 minutes. Uh, as a libertarian... Would you agree with me that uh, uh, given that the state can't protect me uh, from uh, rampant knife crime in London, I should be allowed to carry a gun? 
<laughs> well, uh, that's a good song. Like the one area where my uh, sort of libertarian arguments and philosophies are weakest and carry the least conviction is in the area of guns. Um, you know, I know like a proper purist American libertarian will be full on, um, you know, every man should be able to arm himself. But I actually think on the whole, our, um, uh, our gun crime laws in the UK actually work fairly well. But it's not an area I'm particularly articulate on, Tom. So if you're going to argue with me over it, I'm sure you'll rip me apart. I'm not even sure, quite sure where you stand on guns. Oh, I, I believe I should be allowed to carry a gun to protect myself, not only protect myself uh, uh, from uh, uh, people who might want to, to attack me, uh, but also to defend myself from the state if the state encroaches uh, on my liberties too much. Well, that's, uh, a very good, that's a very good point. And like in America, if you wanted to rise up and overthrow the government and the entire nation is armed, you know, it's sort of vaguely a realistic prospect but in the uk such a thing could never be happened because ordinary people would never stand a chance against the army indeed therefore the state can trample on us all but okay uh, you see so you're not so keen on me being allowed to carry uh, uh, um, a gun in this country i'm just, I'm just what about a knife can i carry a kitchen knife to protect <laughs> me the state you, you live in london you know that the state can't protect you sooner or later you're going to get stabbed uh, if I read the uh, the tabloid press, it's an endemic. I, of course, it's not. But uh, there does seem to be a lot of knife crime. Why can't I carry a, a kitchen knife to protect myself as a libertarian? Well, the um, the, the first thing I'd say is there there does seem to be some kind of endemic of knife crime. It's like it's cool for kids to carry a knife, and you know, my friend's son was at a party in Camden. And, you know, and his parents have got a sort of multi-million pound house in Camden and he goes to um, UCL, University College London, which is sort of, you know, maybe kind of top of the second tier of London public schools. And there's a kid at the party gets knifed a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, it's invaded into the sort of middle class enclaves. Um, it's worth looking at the crime stats in, the, um, in London. And um, so they actually fell into, they were in decline until roughly the end of Boris Johnson's tenure as mayor. And then they've been increasing ever so slightly ever since then. But they're still lower than they were in about 2000, the amount of, so it's quite interesting. So even with all the um, sensationalism about knife climb, it is on a longer term basis still falling, which I, found, I find quite interesting. I think it's really good that everyone's, getting their knickers in a twist about knife crime on, on social media because it's bringing more and more attention to it. And that surely will cause it to fall into decline mm. and decline even further. It's one of those things that the scrutiny that social media brings is good. But the answer to your the question answer is to somebody's walking down the street. The answer that the, well, the answer to your question, if somebody's walking down the street carrying a knife, um, then you've got to say, it, it, I don't know, I guess, you know, that is it to defend themselves or is it to, to stab other people? It, it's the same uh, divided, um, it's not, it's not a black and white thing. 
uh, the more people you put to fight people coming across the channel in rubber dinghies, uh, the more profitable it will be for criminals. And since people want to seek asylum from France and Belgium, understandably, uh, 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 the, the thing's just going to carry on. Well, there's, a, there's a several issues there. But the, the, if you are, like, if you're a purist libertarian, you believe in free movement. Yes. You do not have passports. Correct. Okay. Now, but the, the reality of the world in which we live today is that, is that is an ideal. It's not a real thing. You cannot have unrestrained immigration and a huge benevolent welfare state. Good. And we're agreed on it. Isn't, shouldn't that be the Brexit Party policy? Well, I no, think so. no, no benefits whatsoever for anyone who comes here uh, until they've paid five years' taxes or something. Well, yeah, but I mean, even things like schools, you have to, you have to choose between one and the other. Um, and the reality is, the reality is, is that, you know, whether it's people displaced by war, by hunger, by, for economic reasons, by lack of water isn't going to be another huge thing going forward. We are in a period of, un, you know, probably the greatest mass migration of people in human history. Well, France, has got, France has got that bad. <laughs> no, I'm talking about migration from... BBC really is covering it up badly, the state of Macron's France. I'm sort of talking about movement from, particularly from Africa, but also from Asia into Europe. Yeah, and, OK. I mean, it's huge. You know how big this thing is. And, uh, you know, if you had, if you had no governments and, and free movement and no passports and all the rest of it, I think, you know, this century aside, it's possible that, for example, we wouldn't have seen the huge migration that we saw in the 50s, because a lot of that was actually sponsored by government. Mm -hmm. And that type, type of migration, if you read Douglas Murray, he argues that it takes sort of two or three generations to settle. And, um, you know... So I would venture that if you had no welfare state, you'd probably see less migration. But, um, you know, you look at somewhere, then on the other hand, I'm sort of slightly torn on it, Tom, like a, on all these issues. But if you look at somewhere like Hong Kong, um, where there's, you know, pretty minimal welfare state, in 1947, I think the population was one and a half million. And by the 60s, it, had, it was three or four times that. Now, imagine, you know, the UK population going up by three or four times, you know, from 50, 65 million to 240 million. That's just extraordinary. Now, there is well, the room people for... People attracted to Hong Kong because it was... Well, A, they had an oppressive communist regime on its borders, yeah. uh, and B, because uh, the sort of people who went to Hong Kong were people who wanted to work hard and didn't want a welfare state. They wanted the opportunity to better themselves. Exactly. Uh, and they went there if Britain attracted people of that mindset, no one could object to it. Not even UKIP could object if we had a million or a few million entrepreneurs landing in this country, making us rich again. Listen, I'm a, I'm, you know, I, I favour free movement and no passports. In, in Dominic Frisbee's ideal world, we have free movement and no passports. But the, the, the one of the things that I makes me sad about immigration is what gets destroyed in the process. So, and this is this thing of destroying our past. Now, you know, if you think of what is the archetypal Londoner, the archetypal Londoner is the Cockney. You know, and the, you know, there's just so much history of Cockneys going, you know, back to Dickens and before.
But a Cockney, technically, is someone who is born within a mile of bow belts. And, you know, you sort of associate the Cockney with the white, in, with the white London working class. But the white London working class, you know, there's very few of them born within the, the sound of bow bells now. So, you know, the Cockney doesn't exist anymore. They've, the, the, the white working class have all gone to Kent or Essex, and the people born within a mile of Bow Bells tend to be, you know, of African or Asian descent. Now, they, I, guess, I guess they're the new Cockneys. But, but back in, back in, back in uh, 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 the 1600s, the, the new Cockneys were Mr Farage's uh, antecedents, the Huguenots. Oh, were they? Things, yeah, it was Weaver's yeah. Field, all that sort of thing. It was Huguenots. Uh, 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 were the uh, uh, people who occupied the area I within a mile. Slightly of later. I thought they came slightly, slightly later. I mean, I've got my, my dad's side of the... Uh, my mum's side of the family are all Italian, and they all lived in... Well, probably they were all in, in Hoxton, but... Um, not Hoxton, um, Clerkenwell. Clerkenwell, the Italian so, area. So, yeah, but almost within the sound of Bow Bells, you'd say. So I guess, you know, there's a... and they, I mean, they're all basically... You'd call them Cockneys if you met them now. But, yeah, so... Uh, a lot of, you know, this is why you get the whole conservative thing of wanting to conserve and the whole Chesterton of, thing of not destroying traditions um, just for the sake of destroying them. You could, you often traditions are there for a reason, and if you don't understand the reason, that's no reason to destroy it. You know, so it's, it's a, there's a lot of moral quandaries. To, to traditions, I mean, we're, we're, uh, our kids, when you and I were in school, uh, we were taught about uh, um, people like uh, uh, Wolf and uh, Clive of India, uh, and uh, when I, uh, if kids are taught about these things at all, they're taught that these were evil, um, oppressive men. Yeah, I know. Is that something you regret? I think the polit politicisation of history in schools is terrible. Okay. Let's, uh, one final question for you as a libertarian. <clears throat> Should there be an age of consent? Well, again... You're asking me all these. It's it's hard being a government minister, isn't it? It's easier to hold call from the side. The uh, you know, to not all sixteen-year-olds are the same. Yes, there's some sixteen-year-olds who are just you know so young, and they're too they're just too young to be having sex. And then there are other sixteen-year-olds for whom you'd say, okay, fair enough. And I guess you know the law can't be flexible enough. You know, some 16-year-olds have barely reached puberty. Mm. And, you know, so... And, and then others, you you know, look like sort of... You could be 25. My daughter... Come, her friends come over, and my daughter's 16. And, you know, the, 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 they, are, they are all at very different um, stages of development. So um, I guess the answer to that question is yes and no. <laughs> right, your, your libertarianism can hardly be said to be uh, uh, well, uh, rigid. No, I've done libertarian tests and I don't score very well. The, um, the what, uh, what, what's your view on the age of consent? Uh, I'm, I'm interviewing you. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I'm putting you on spot, oh, okay. Dominic. Um, I had uh, someone say that uh, when I'm interviewing my next guest today, I'm not allowed to ask them challenging questions. I just have to ask them easy ones. So I'll, I'll move on to a nice easy one for you. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry that you're not going to be a Brexit Party candidate. Uh, I sense that you are far too interesting to be uh, 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 standing there. You might have got some rather difficult questions. 
You were standing against um, uh, uh, some little creep who uh, has six ovens and uh, was an industrial scale uh, uh, slicker of Theresa May. Is that right? Broken shit. The, the, yeah. I, uh, have I summarised him correctly? Well, that's one view. Right, okay. I mean, um, he, was, he was your classic uh, toe-the-party-line, get-on-by-not-standing-for-anything, centrist. You know, he's even more centrist than Heath, who was his predecessor uh, in, in that borough. And, you know, he's the sort of technocrat, centrist politician that the country is sick of. And yeah, yeah. Brokenshire should be, there should be a centre party that has everything from, you know, the Brokenshires and the Theresa Mays right through to the Tony Blairs and the, and the Keir Starmers. You know, there, there should be one party for those guys. The, there should be another party that represents the sort of Boris Johnson stroke Jacob Rees-Mogg stroke Steve Baker kind of side of the, you, you know, the intellectual... Um, uh, classical liberals in, to the right of the Conservative Party and there should be another party that represents socialists because 20 to 25% of the country it, you know, has socialist leanings and the, the party political system in its current form it is not representative it, it always gets dominated it favours the centre and whether it's Labour or Conservative occupying the centre the centre wins and, you know, one of the beauties of Brexit is hopefully it's, it's, it's pulling that apart. OK, and then when we, we come to the election that is coming up, uh, which I think we both agree will be in the autumn, uh, are you not torn? I, for me, Boris Johnson seems to be doing a lot of right things. If I want Brexit, uh, I find myself uh, uh, living in a, I think it's a Tory Labour marginal with Labour currently in power, if I waste my vote on, on the Brexit party, I might, uh, I, I might endanger Brexit. Yeah, I know. Isn't that... I mean, but fortunately, we've got where we are. Your goose is, your goose is cooked, isn't it? The, the well, Brexit party's goose is cooked. People like, like me who might support it have got to vote Tory to save Brexit. Almost. I mean, and, and I love this thing he's just done yesterday, is if you don't vote with the government this week, you're out. Yeah. I mean, it's just beautiful. The um, Tory party is going to go to the next election, having purged itself of Dominic Grieve and Ken uh, Clark and uh, uh, all those sort of uh, uh, horrible people who don't support Brexit. And it's going to present us with a choice. If you want Brexit, you've got to back Bozza. He may have his failings. He does have his failings, but you've got to back Bozza. I agree. And, um, you know... The Boris, if it wasn't for the Brexit, because Boris always had the support of the um, membership and he was always had the popularity of the public. He'd never had the support of the MPs. But as soon as the Brexit party came along and then the, the Conservative Party uh, MPs went to vote, you know, the MPs put him over the line in the very first vote. He got 105 seats or whatever it was. So he was always going to be going to the um, membership and he would always win the membership's vote. Huntstead never stood a chance. So, but that has been forced upon them by the Brexit Party. So okay. even well, if we, the Brexit we, Party doesn't actually win, it, is, it has got us over the line. It's no, we, can, we, we can agree on two things, that uh, Nigel Farage, uh, firstly via UKIP and now by the Brexit Party, got us the referendum. The threat of Farage forced Cameron to promise a referendum. 
the uh, effect of people like uh, uh, Farage during the campaign almost certainly made sure that we won uh, uh, the referendum. And Farage and the Brexit party have made sure that the Tory party have abandoned Theresa May and replaced uh, uh, with someone who is a true believer, Boris. We can Correct. agree on all of that. Yeah. But right now, the Brexit party's goose is cooked. Whatever it's standing as in the opinion polls, anyone thinking of voting for the Brexit party, if they live in a Labour uh, Tory marginal or a Tory Liberal marginal, uh, is going to damage Brexit. Yeah, potentially. Um, but they, they, need to, they need to get a tactic, tactics going together. On the, on the other hand, Brexit can steal a lot of um, seats off Labour. But yeah, I mean, it's it's forced it's forced these antics of Boris Johnson and and this thing of if you don't vote with the government, you get deselected. Again, that's it's good for Brexit, but it's bad for the Brexit Party. Yes, there can be a lot of things which could be good for Brexit, but bad for the Brexit Party. Okay, uh, let's uh, uh, just uh, stick with Boris Johnson for a second. As a man who believes in sound money, uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, once said that uh, the problem with socialists is eventually they run out of other people's money. Looking at the spending commitments that Boris Johnson is making ahead of this autumn election, uh, shouldn't she have rephrased that and saying the problem with conservatives is that eventually they run out of other people's money? <laughs> well, looking not just at the spending commitments of Boris Johnson, but the Conservative Party since 2009, you know, we're still taxed at 45 percent, which is far too much. Tax still, government spending accounts for something like 50% of GDP, and it should be 20%. So yes, uh, yes, you could levy that accusation. Um, I think I might be wrong, but I think Boris is picking his battles at the moment. And so, for example, he's feeding the monster that is the NHS while, while he does Brexit. And then I guess he'll turn his attention to other things in, in due course. Do you honestly believe? Uh, let's, let's no, I, I'm, I'm not sure because Boris has got a big ego and big egos uh, in power tend to like spending. He wants, Boris Johnson wants to be loved. Uh, we're not talking about the, you know, 25% of women in London who have loved him, literally. We're talking about the whole population. Boris wants to be loved. Well, let's start with the thing. There was no austerity, was there? No. There was in, in a few things like you know, in, in areas where the lobbying groups had very little, where the, the victims of government cuts had very little lobbying power. The, the, there was some austerity for, like, the disabled. And, and there were some small groups did suffer from austerity. But austerity as a whole was a sort the of... armed forces. A, a, yeah, the armed forces, another one. But as a whole, it was pretty fictional. Government spending barely declined. It went up. Oh, there you go. I think in a couple of years, didn't it decline a little bit? Or the deficit shrunk? The deficit shrunk, but government spending went up. The government got lucky in that post the economic crisis, uh, we had um, a boom, a, a boom which I think you and I would uh, agree was driven by an asset bubble. Um, and that meant the tax receipts went up. Yeah. Um, but, but so austerity was, was a myth. Uh, but the, the, the current Conservative government, Mrs May declared that austerity is over. Um, Boris Johnson is, spending, is planning spending commitments which are eye-watering. Uh, doesn't, doesn't that bode for... I mean, it means he may win the election, but doesn't it bode for trouble in the long run? Probably, yeah. Are you, are you gloomy about Britain in the long run? We've talked about this before. Uh, uh, Britain, we continue to have the government getting ever bigger and bigger, 
uh, and borrowing more and more money. We do spend more money, even with current interest rates, on servicing the national debt than we do on, for instance, defence. Uh, does that not worry you? No, I'm pretty... I mean, yeah, it does. I'd like to see the government spending much less. I think we should be at 20% of, like I say, not 50, but at 20%. And, um, but, you know, there is a big purging process going on. And um, there's so many um, little dynamics that are going to occur going forward that are just going to restrict the government's hand. Um, you know, I mean, if you listen to, like, the radio for the Today programme in the morning, it's basically two or three hours of pressure groups. And there are just so many lobbying groups all demanding that the government does this and the government does that, and all that results in is more spending. But if you look at the majority of what actual, you know, most British people want, or certainly English people, they kind of want less tax, more individual responsibility and less state. And, you know, that sort of silent majority of post-Brexit, they're being heard... Now, the biggest source of government revenue is income tax. It counts for something like 50% of government revenue in the UK and generally worldwide as well. Now, if you look at income tax, it's been so successful because it's successful from the point of view of the government because it's been easy to collect. And, um, you know, it's, it's easy to deduct money from the employer at the, at the point at which the employee is paid. But the relationship between employer and employee is changing. We're seeing many more freelancers, many more people working in the gig economy. And um, Ernst & Young estimate that by 2035, half the world's workforce will be gig, gig workers. It's going to be much harder to collect tax from them. Uh, you know, it's harder to collect tax after the event, and it's harder to collect tax when people aren't necessarily using your currency. So that's going to put pressure on government revenues. And... Um, you know, governments go where taxes are easy to collect. And but the other sort of pattern you look at through history is that governments impose new taxes at in times of war, in times of crisis. And then what happens after the war is the tax remains even after the war has ended. You know, the war kind of justifies and normalizes the tax. But governments who try to impose new taxes in times of peace struggle, it makes them very unpopular. You just need to look at something like George Osborne's um, you know, uh, tampon tax and all that, just to see what happens. And Margaret Thatcher's poll tax is another example. So unless we go into a war, it's going to be very hard to impose new taxes. I've, I happen to think a land value tax is a big problem solver, but no government's going to get elected uh, on the back of a land value tax. So the, all this is going to just force governments ever so slightly to trim down what they do. At the same time, we're seeing technology um, replace and be better than government services. Um, so you're already seeing something like Uber is before long will be cheaper than public transport, particularly after we go to driverless cars. You'll see, you see the internet, which is the greatest learning tool ever invented. It's free. You know, it makes a lot of what goes on in schools look pretty redundant. I don't know if you followed the story about me home educating my son in his last year of school and he just got him one a place at Bristol. Um, you see things like more and more apps to do with health. Silicon Valley is, is trying to, in inverted commas, solve the healthcare problem. And, you know, things like, so there's more and more of these things are just, you know, Babylon Healthcare. I've done if you've used it, but it's brilliant, but it makes you wonder what the point of a GP is. So all of these things are bettering government services 
and costing less. And, you know, the, the price you pay is your data. Well, data didn't even exist as a, as a marketable, a valuable thing 20 or 25 years ago. So they've created an entirely new value in data. So, so the, all these various factors are going to coincide in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years. And I just think they lead to less government, not more government. So, and the other thing is, is you know, I've just come back from the Edinburgh Festival where I've been surrounded by students, um, you know, doing my flyers, doing my tech, you know, all guys. Now, admittedly, these are the more entrepreneurial students because they're guys who've, who've gone to Edinburgh looking for work. But nevertheless, um, I encountered so much sympathy. Um, for example, I do a song um, uh, called Maybe that has a verse all about the NHS being overhyped. And, you know, that's sacrilege to some people. But you are the envy of the world, Dominic. It's the well, envy exactly. of the world. Precisely. Don't mention Harold Shipman or Midstaffs. It's the envy of the world. Well, precisely. But I was saying to my musicians, do you think I should cut that verse? And all the kids were saying, no, keep it in. It's the best verse. So you're, the next generation that's coming through, I think you might find they're less sympathetic to large state values than one than one might suspect I just, on, on the subject of taxes imposed during war and tax evasion uh, I'm uh, I'm speaking to you from a house in Wales I'm looking out the window but uh, about a third of the windows in this house were shuttered up uh, yeah. in the 1690s as a result of the window tax and they stay uh, uh, in one way or another closed up uh, and that of course was a tax imposed in time of war which stayed in place until the 1850s uh, actually, actually, um, that's that's not quite true. The the window tax, by the way, is where we get the expression "daylight robbery" from. Right. And, um, my new book is called "Daylight Robber," and it comes out next month. So <laughs> a big chapter about the window tax. The window tax was imposed. Um, yes, you're right. It was imposed at a time of war, 1697. 1690s. Yeah. It was. But what actually happened is there was a tax in place called the hearth tax, where you were taxed on every fireplace you had in your house. And it was loathed. The British hated it. It was a violation of their privacy. And it was also quite a hard tax to collect because tax um, collectors would have to enter into people's houses to count the number of hearths they had. And this was a, considered a violation of the Englishman's sacred privacy. And when William of Orange came over um, uh, after the Glorious Revolution, in order to sort of ingratiate himself with the public, because remember, this was a Dutch king. We weren't sure if we wanted a Dutch king. And, um, but it, to, in order to ingratiate himself with the public, he, the Parliament and William of Orange repealed the half tax. And then five years later, they found themselves with no money. <laughs> and so they needed to raise money somehow. And that's why we got the windows tax, because it was a much easier tax to collect rather than enter somebody's house to, to count the number of fireplaces they had. An assessor could just walk past somebody's house and count the number of windows. And, um, and so, you know, it was, much, it was a much harder, easier tax to collect, assess, and also a much harder tax to evade. We must come to the house because the windows here are closed up in two different ways. Uh, one of them very, very unusual, but it's all to do with the window tax. Anyhow, you did mention, by the way, the BBC. Before we go on to Bitcoin and gold, um, why is it that radio shows, uh, uh, comedy radio shows on Radio 4, are the most unfunny shows uh, uh, ever? Well, I hate no. Trump, blah, blah, blah. Boris is a Nazi, blah, blah, blah. Brexit will cause 
an outbreak of supergronorrhea and we're all going to starve to death. I've just summarised uh, uh, the next radio show, uh, comedy show on Radio 4. And the audience fall about in hysterics. Well, there are occasional gems, but I agree. The standard of BBC radio comedy over the years has been terrible. It's, I'm afraid that, you know, that sort of left-wing um, view is institutionalised in, in BBC Radio 4. It's you know, I've been trying to get stuff on BBC Radio 4 for 20 years. I've been submitting programme ideas every... We had a brilliant thing. We made a pilot of this economics quiz about a year ago, and it was so good. Oh, my goodness me, it was good. And then they, they commissioned the pilot and never commissioned the series. And so, you know, I, I, it's not for want of trying on my side. Believe me, I've been trying to get... I, I think I'm perfect. But if you'd altered the script to say, um, uh, if we increased government spending by 300%, then like Venezuela, we're going to be uh, the richest country on earth, you'd have got the series away, Dominic. Well, maybe, but I, I think it's also to just do with who's hot and, you know, what agent, who, what agent you've got and all this sort of thing. It's all factors. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of box ticking going on. So, but it's, you know, uh, trust me, Tom, I, I am not a fan of most BBC Radio 4 comedy and I'm forever trying to get, you know, they, I, I think some of the songs I've written on my album, Libertarian Love Songs, are very funny and they're about, you know, they're, they're clever because they're about the modern political situation. Can't get one of them. They won't even play any of them on there. So, you know, don't blame me. Should the BBC be privatised? Of course it should. You know, the, 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 um, the, the licence fee should, be, should not be mandatory. Um, why do we need state-supplied TV? Um, it, it, the programmes are bland, pious, holier-than-thou... You know, the licence fee, you know, we've got, we, it, the, the subscription model works perfectly well. It's been proven. And let people, subs, you know, let, the, let it be voluntary. If it was voluntary, of course, one suspects that the income of the BBC would be much lower. And one effect of that is it wouldn't be able to afford uh, some of the huge salaries it, 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 it pays people. And that would, uh, the, the huge salaries the BBC pays distort salaries throughout the media industry. Take the BBC out of the equation in its current format and salaries across the industry would fall. Listen, um, Tom, how hard is it to read an auto cue and talk about football? There are probably five million people in this country that would do Gary Lineker's job for nothing and probably four million of them. All he's doing is reading an auto cue and talking about football. And he seems to have been um, imbued with this special thing because he was centre forward for England. Well, I'm sorry, being a player does not mean you talk about football any better than someone who wasn't a player. Because, you know, if you talk, if you spend your whole life talking about something, you get good at talking about it. And, you know, I challenge Alan Shearer, how many, how big is your vocabulary? I bet he's not even got a vocabulary of a thousand words. All he ever says is, oh, he'll be disappointed with that. And, you know, and they get paid these extraordinary sums. And, and it's because they all used to be centre forward for England. But if you had, for example, comedians talking about football who spend their whole life watching and talking and loving the game, match of the day would be about 50 times better. And for a start, bullshit would get called out. And at the moment, it doesn't. Which team do you support, Dominic? I support two teams, Tom, and I know there's an inconsistency there, but I grew up in Fulham, so I grew up going to watch Fulham as a little boy. Um, and, but in those days, Fulham were in the third division. 
And the, I remember watching Kevin Keegan win the Superstars on his bike. And David Vine then said to Kevin Keegan, good luck at Liverpool this season. And the following week, I watched Match of the Day for the very first time, and Kevin Keegan scored. And I don't know how much you remember Kevin Keegan, but he was such a charismatic player. He gave it everything. And um, he was so competitive and so passionate. And so from that moment on, I was a Kevin Keegan fan and a Liverpool fan. And, you know, you sort of you have this obligation to support your local team. But unfortunately, television makes everything local. And so... Um, I now have this divided loyalty where I support Fulham and Liverpool. <laughs> right, right. I was, the pitch, I was the pitch side announcer at Fulham for a little bit. I got sacked, though. What were you sacked for? Making jokes about cottaging? <laughs> Al Fayed decided he was going to go on the pitch at the beginning of the season and do a rap, which Dave Allen, uh, uh, Dave Allen, not Dave Allen, um, what's Lily Allen's dad called? Uh, Mr. Steve Allen. Allen. Yeah, I know the Mr. one, yeah. Allen. Keith Allen, Keith Allen had written for him. And, um, and I was emceeing it and uh, uh, the DJ played the wrong track and Alpha had died. And it was quite extraordinary watching, watching him die in front of, you know, 40,000, 30,000 Fulham fans. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, when I say die, I mean comedically die. Yeah, yeah I understand. And, um, yeah. But everyone, uh, everyone uh, involved got the sack, including me. <laughs> Okay, let's move now on to uh, uh, gold. Uh, when did you stop being a gold bug? Oh, I'm a gold. I'm a massive, massive gold bug, and gold's in a bull market again. I uh, just what I tell you what I just got sick of the sort of gold perma bulls. Fiat money's going to collapse. The dollar's going to collapse. All those arguments and the way they got manipulated into gold is a safe haven investment. Uh, therefore, a mining company that has staked a little, uh, you know, an exploration company that has staked some land in, you know, X, Y, Z location is uh, somehow a proxy on that. And, you know, it just isn't. There's nothing more risky than, than mining exploration. And the idea that it, it was somehow as safe as gold and the whole bullshit of mining got unraveled after 2013 and just got exposed um, for the for the bullshit. Um, it is. And that just made me incredibly cynical, less about gold, but more about mining. But it also made me cynical about all the narratives that surround gold. I still have an incredible amount of sympathy. But the reality is gold is now trading at all time highs against the sterling, against the euro, um, against I think against the Aussie dollar, against the There's Canadian no dollar. Apart from the US dollar, where it's still uh, uh, 400 off the all time yeah. high. Precisely. And the US dollar's in a bull market and gold's going up while the US dollar's in a bull market. That's extraordinary. Gold's in a bull market. It's been in a, and this is a really good bull market, Tom, because it's a stealth bull market. It's not on the headlines. And gold miners aren't moving. They will. They are moving a little bit. But, you know, it's not like the heydays of 2005, 2006. Um, so this is this is a really this is the best kind of bull market. It's going up, and not enough people are talking about it. Okay, well, let's start with the dollar. Why is the dollar strong? Uh, uh, I mean, not so why it's strong against the most most currencies, but still, the U.S. has a monumental deficit. Uh, Trump, obviously, you know, great man, etc. Uh, uh, but he's spending like Boris Johnson. Um, why why is it that the dollar people aren't seeing because 
the, the dollar is being devalued by the printing press still. Sure. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm never really sure with these wise arguments. Why is this happening? <coughs> because there's a million different explanations. But the bottom line is more people are buying the US dollar than they are selling it. Now, why would you buy the US dollar? I guess compared to other currencies, it looks fairly safe. But the, the bottom line is the US dollar is in a bull market. It is going up. And that's all you need to know. Do you, uh, but let's just quickly uh, switch back to politics. Uh, who's going to win in 2020? Well, I don't even know who's going to be the next Democrat, but at the moment, unless they get it right, Trump's going to win. Let's assume that it looks like they're going to go with Joe Biden, who, as far as I can see, is a senile um, serial groper. So he's a bit like Donald Trump, but he's just senile. Without the charisma. Without the charisma. Oh, that's the other thing, yes. Uh, on that basis, if it's, um, if it's uh, Trump against Biden or perhaps uh, Pocahontas, uh, then Trump wins, right? Uh, looks like it, but there's quite a few very marginal seats. That if the Democrats, you know, win those, it was what was one of them went just by twenty thousand votes or something? Yeah, there's places so that, like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, that that'll determine what happens. The Rust Belt. Yeah. Uh, did you did you have any faves amongst the Democrats? Do you have a soft spot for I'm, Tulsi I'm, Gabbard? I'm, I haven't followed it, Tom. I Check really out Tulsi Gabbard, Dominic. Who? Tulsi Gabbard. I don't know who that is. Go for fit women in uniform. Check her out. Anyhow, I digress slightly. Um, uh, back to it. So the dollars in a bull run. Gold. Why is gold back in a bull market? Well, again, you can you can you can find narratives and put them on it. You can say because the dollar's being devalued, because gold's a safe haven, because Chinese are buying gold, because the Russians are buying gold, because central banks are increasing their gold holdings. All these things. These are just things that have been going on. They never go away. And when gold's falling and somebody goes, well, gold should be going up because the Chinese are buying. Well, it's not. It's falling. The, the bottom line is gold is in a bull market, it is going up. And there are all sorts of technical resistance levels on the gold chart that where gold should have um, slowed down and it hasn't. And so, you know, new highs lead to more new highs. Um, you know, there's a lot of resistance in that gold chart between about 1520 and 1575. You know, there's a, in the mid-1500s, there's a huge amount of resistance and gold's stalled there at the moment. But given the action of the last couple of years, why should it stop? So are you a technical analyst? Uh, uh, oh, very much so, yeah, yeah. In all things, in shares, in everything? Well, I'm a bit wary about being a technical analyst with, um, with uh, shares, particularly small caps, because often there's just tiny things going on at the company that don't get picked up. But I'm a big believer in trend following. Big, big. I've, just, I've looked at so many different ways, I've studied so many different ways of making money, Tom, and, and, and you know, whether it's, you know, Short of having inside information, which is like the, which is illegal. Inside dealing is investment. Everything else is pure speculation. Well, in, yeah, insider dealing is illegal. But you, you know, if, unless you've got information that other people don't have, I think trend following is the best way of making money. Or and 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 technical analysis is the best way to identify trends. I'm sure of that. Okay, so we, we, you, you talked about uh, uh, this disconnect between gold and gold mining stocks. Uh, surely at some stage, if one believes that gold is going to go up and continue to go up, then buying shares in a gold mining company, 
which is actually producing gold and has a reasonably long uh, uh, life, um, these things should be operationally geared uh, to a higher gold price. And you, you can't lose, can you? They should be, but they aren't. Because when the gold price because goes up... gold mining is just it's a difficult business. And, um, you know, there's very few people who actually make it work. And the thing that gold mining... Like, if you look at the 1930s, when it became illegal to, for Americans to own gold in the Depression, the gold mining companies, Homestake in particular, did extremely well. But the difference between the 1930s and now, if you think we're going into some kind of, you know, economic troublesome times, is that there are a million different ways to own gold. It was illegal in the 1930s. And even in the 70s, gold mining shares flew. But you're just better off, if you want leverage to the gold price, then buy some kind of gold derivative. But gold miners do not act as they have been lagging gold for, you know, probably since the mid-noughties. And you look at even companies like Newmont, you know, they've just made such a mess of that gold court deal that, that uh, it was just such a bad deal that even Newmont has lagged the gold price. And how can, so what's the point of buying, taking on individual company risk when there are so many different ways to own gold? And if you want leverage to the gold price, there are some forms of gold derivatives. Isn't that, that uh, the point that uh, uh, well, you highlighted, I think, with Newmont, is that when gold goes up, Management of big companies, they'll, A, they'll pay themselves more and they'll, they'll lose any idea of cost control. <coughs> B, historically, oil has kind of tracked gold price and therefore the cost of power, which is always a very big uh, component of cost, goes yeah. up. But C, critically, when the gold price goes up and gold shares start moving, management invariably grotesquely overpay for bad acquisitions and therefore destroy value. Yeah, and they're just, I mean, I, I mean, you've met so many gold mining companies, Tom, over the years, like I have. And, you know, I've been over to Canada to meet these guys. And a lot, you know, occasionally you meet guys who are really, like, on it. But a lot of them are just fat old idiots. Yeah, well, now we come to the juniors, the gold juniors, which, of course, is what people are interested in. Uh, one of the lessons of the last uh, shakeout of the juniors after the last gold mark, bull market it's just how useless these people are. Yeah, and you can't... The other unfortunate thing is it's very risky staying in a junior too long. If, you've, if you make good money and you, you get lucky with your timing and you buy low and your shares go up, a lot of people just hang on and then they end up giving it all back. And so, I mean, you know, I'm still... My portfolio is still ludicrously overweight to gold miners. I can't help myself, but I just do not like them. <laughs> and gold juniors, people who attempted to play the gold market by investing in a sprinkling of AIM, uh, non-producing AIM stocks, uh, you think they might get lucky and make short-term gains, I just but on not, a two, three years, I would not buy a lot. I would not buy a gold junior on AIM, full stop. Would you buy a gold junior on any market? In Canada or Australia, I would. But so the good gold juniors will be both quoted in Canada and Australia, along with a whole load well, of shit. I mean, there is good. Like I've got a shares in a name company, and I know the manager. It's called um, Altius, and you know the management have done such a good job. And is they're that really Steve Poulton? Steve Poulton. Yeah, exactly those guys. And I really like those guys. I know they're honest. Know, yeah, exactly. Matthew Granger and Stephen Poulton, and I know they're honest. I know they're committed. They've done good deals for the company. They're frugal with cash. 
when 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 they listed in Canada, they they their their souls were almost destroyed by how much money it cost the company. You know, they've done a really good job of managing the company. And the share price, you know, I did it at the IPO. I can't remember what it was now. It was like 10p, I think. And now, what's the share price now? Like 4p or something. And that's a good company. You know, isn't the one? They are very conservative, those two. They don't go out ramping the shares here, there, and everywhere. No, and they're uh, not having dinner in Savoy. No. Aren't they based, and they're also based in somewhere grim like Digcut? Exactly. Yeah, okay, that, that is, uh, uh, whereas most of these gold companies are based in the West End. Yeah. Uh, that tells you everything you need to know about cost control. Okay, so the gold, uh, gold things, are you generally bearish or bullish about shares? What, what like the FTSE 100 or, or the FTSE? Yeah, the stock market in general. I tell you, like, Tom, uh, the problem that the UK share market has, uh, firstly, the, the FTSE's just... Uh, you know, uh, is leverage to natural resource companies. So a lot of that, the, a lot of the performance of the FTSE will depend on oil and metals prices, um, and and banks. But the 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 problem that the UK has is that I think sterling is vastly undervalued, and I think once as soon as Brexit is done, sterling has a bull market. And fair value for sterling is probably like 150 to the US dollar, maybe 125 to the euro, whereas at the moment it's about 110 to the euro and maybe 122 or something to the US dollar. So I just think sterling on a purchasing power parity, uh, purchasing power parity basis is undervalued. And I, th I think we're going to have a big bull market in sterling. Now, if sterling goes up, then the, the price of UK assets... Uh, uh, struggle um, because you know uh, it, they become more expensive to overseas buyers. So that's going to impact some of the growth in the in UK shares, particularly um, ones that rely on overseas buyers. So that's that's one factor. But uh, you know, like I said to you before, I'm not overly negative. The UK, I, I, I you know, I think it's a pretty good country, and the 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 English, um, well, the British sort of succeed in spite of our leaders, not because of them. But, you know, I think Boris is, 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 despite all his spending, he's inclined towards lower taxes and lower taxes benefit growth. I think we'll see a reduction in stamp duty coming in the autumn. Um, so, you know, there's all these factors at play. But so the short answer is, uh, you know, I think if you buy like a, I'd buy a FTSE 250 tracker rather than a FTSE 100 tracker, um, and if you just go long the footsie and just lock it away for 10 years, you'll be fine. Okay, two questions come out of that. This is the second time in this interview you've differentiated between the English and the British. Uh, do you share my view that uh, the best thing that, that uh, as a taxpayer in England or Wales could happen to us is if the Scots fuck off uh, because they're a welfare dependent drain on the economy uh, and it means we wouldn't have them to listen to ghastly people like Nicola Sturgeon moaning and whinging all the time. Wouldn't it, certainly in the sense of our joie de vivre, uh, we'd all be happier without Nicola Sturgeon and Kirsty Walk and other people. But economically, we'd be so much better off if they just fucked off. I think it would be better for everyone. Everyone? Um, yeah. The, the, the English... The, the, of the Northern Hemisphere. Well... And, and they'd still blame the English. And we could just prosper. It'd be great, wouldn't I, it? I, I'm, 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 I wrote an article for The Independent if you, back in 2014 about the Scottish referendum. 
So sadly, no one read it. But okay. So well, no, actually, it was the most read article on the Independent. But if you if you look at um, if you look at um, the richest ten countries in the world on a per capita basis, they all have three things in common. And we're talking about you know Norway, Luxembourg, Hong Kong, Switzerland, uh, Brunei, Qatar, these kind of countries. Now, one thing they all have in common is that they all have a population of less than 10 million. And then in addition to that, they are all either financial centres or they have a lot of oil. Scotland is the only country in the world that has all three. It has the small population, it has the oil, and it has the potential to become a financial centre. You know, Edinburgh's got huge financial infrastructure there. And it's the potential of Scotland and the Scottish people is immense. And I just think for their own well-being, for their own um, sense of, of pride and, and, and um, self-esteem, they need to be independent and go it alone. Now, it might be they need a disastrous socialist government to get there, but as soon as that's out of the way, you know, if, 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 if they do go independent and then elect a socialist government, they'll bankrupt themselves fairly quickly, but at least that will purge it and then they can come out the other side. But the potential of Scotland is immense. But you did, uh, in, in, a, in a book you wrote, uh, where I actually went to the launch, uh, uh, you had a chapter on health uh, uh, in Scotland, life expectancy rates in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, basically, the more money that's thrown at uh, these uh, uh, miserable wretches uh, and encouraging them to have healthy lifestyles, the, the less healthy their lifestyles are. And uh, as a result, life expectancy in parts of Glasgow is less than that in the Ukraine. Um, the, the moral I took from that, I mean, it's very much the Scottish mentality. 88% of them are net takers from the state. They believe that their answer to their problems is for the state to do to wipe their asses and just uh, get the English to pay for the tissues uh, and just to spend more and more and more and more. So if they do get independence, uh, they won't go down a low-tax deregulation model. Their initial thing will be just to spend, spend, spend. Yeah, they might eventually. Okay, so the, the best thing for Scotland is for them to be independent, to go bankrupt, and then uh, uh, a revival along the principles of Adam Smith, the, not the, Gordon Brown. <laughs> the best thing for Scotland is to vote for its own independence and go independent and then make its own choices. And the best thing for England is for them to fuck off. Yeah, well, I would go one stage further, Tom, and I, w I wouldn't use such industrial language, but I would... You know, one of the questions I ask in my show, I have a competition to find out who is the most libertarian person in the room, and they have to answer 50-50 questions. And one of the questions I ask is, which is preferable, a United Kingdom or a confederation of smaller city states along the lines of the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy? And, you know, London should be separate. You know, you, when you work as I do in London, then you go out to the rest of the country, they're just two different places. Two different nations almost. London should be an independent nation. Cornwall should be independent. You could, you know, you could have, what is it, the six kingdoms of Wales or whatever it is. Wessex should be independent. Mercia, Northumbria, you know. So I'd go back to the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy, a confederation of smaller city-states. They say Jacob Rees-Mogg is the spokesman for the 17th century. He's got nothing on you, Dominic. I'm the um, spokesman for pre-1066. <laughs> the, the good old days. Um, back to basics. Um, finally, uh, 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 Bitcoin. You were a bull. 
that for a while you looked like you knew what you were talking about, and then it crashed from twenty thousand dollars to four thousand. Today it's just under ten. Um, is Bitcoin just a bubble, isn't it? No, uh, we've had this conversation many times, Tom. If it was a bubble, it would have long since gone away. It, oh, sorry, I've just switched my phone on and it's, it's going, I'm getting bananas. Um, the it's Nigel potential, Farrell, you change your mind, but okay. The, the reason the Bitcoin is such a speculative asset is about three different reasons. Firstly, it is a new technology and the world always goes bananas over a new technology. Secondly, that new technology is a new system of money. You could not design a more bubbly asset if you tried. The, but the bottom line with Bitcoin is if it was going to die, it would have long since died by now. It's now 10 years old. You, the potential of Bitcoin to be the new default, we need on the Internet, we need a borderless system of money. We need a way of sending money across borders easily and quickly. And, you know, the US dollar and national currencies are limited by their borders. Bitcoin has no such constraints on it. The scalability of it is enormous. And by the way, I'm very bullish about this Facebook coin as well. Um, now, the, I'm not saying it will be, but Bitcoin has the potential to be the default cash system of the Internet. And when something has that much potential, you're a fool if you don't have some exposure to it. How do you have exposure to it? I own some Bitcoins and I'm a d director of a, a Bitcoin company in Canada. So I've got a lot of shares in that company. Are there quite a lot of people who are involved in the Bitcoin? And I Bitcoin? wrote a book about it. Okay. Are you, uh, are, would, you not, would you disagree with the assertion that quite a lot of people who are, uh, claim to be involved in the Bitcoin and blockchain industries are crooks? It's full of crooks and bullshitters. It's just like mining. Okay. And um, uh, uh, should I buy $10,000? Should, should I buy a bit of Bitcoin? Yes. What percentage of my portfolio should I have in Bitcoin and what percentage should I have in physical gold? Um, well, you know the answer to that, don't you? It's 5 to 10% in gold and hope it doesn't go up. Um, the, uh, in Bitcoin, you know, 1%. It depends how speculative you're feeling and, and how uh, au fait you are with the tech. The first thing you should do is just buy £20 worth and get, and get a friend to buy £20 worth and send each other small amounts of Bitcoin and just get used to the tech. But you, you, you should have, you know, 1, 5, 10% of your portfolio. I know people who've got 100% of their portfolio in Bitcoin. They never need to work again. You know, it's not got the same upside that it had five or 10 years ago. Of course not. But nevertheless, it still has a huge amount of potential upside and everyone should have some exposure to it. The thing which most people have a vast percentage of their portfolio in is uh, the house they live in is residential property. Uh, you indicated that you expect uh, Bozza to, uh, uh, to uh, keep the bubble going by cutting stamp duty. But on the other hand, particularly where you live, not so much where I live, uh, uh, if sterling goes up, foreign buyers are going to disappear or, or look to cash in their gains. Um, what's your outlook on residential property? It is a bubble, isn't it? Well, yeah, but it's the bubble that never bursts. I mean, you know, had, what's a bubble? A bubble is a bull market that you don't have a position in. The, um, you know, it's overvalued in relation to what people earn, but then, but it has been, it was in the 1990s. 
Um, it's overvalued. Uh, you know, mortgage costs are so low that that even people can take on much larger amounts of debt than they could in the 1990s. Um, people, bottom line is, God knows why, but people want to live in London. And therefore, you know, London property tends to go up. Elsewhere in the country, that there isn't the same, you know, upwards pressure on prices. George Osborne's stamp duty, I've got some um, very wealthy Argentinian friends. One of them's a fund manager from, for Santander, recently bought a house in Tufnell Park in North London. And, he, you know, his, his wife basically bullied him into buying it. He had to pay, I think, 150 or 200 grand's worth of stamp duty. And he was just crying at the, you know, 200 grand is, is very hard to earn that kind of money. And to just give it away in tax, you know, and just have nothing for it. You know, that's a very hard thing to do. And so, you know, that's why stamp duties killed the top end of the market. And George Osborne did it because, oh, look at me, I'm penalizing the rich. But he killed the top end of the market. And that, but it has slowed the whole market down. That, that sort of, cap at the top end of the market won't exist if, if Boris gets rid of stamp duty and there's so many of his advisors from like the IEA and all those kind of places are saying get rid of stamp duty I think it's kind of inevitable that it will go so that will free up the top of the market but at the same time that freeing up will be tempered a little bit by a rising pound assuming sterling rises um, but won't that know, just be seen as by Jeremy Corbyn and by yeah, much though I'm sympathetic to your Argentinian friend paying 200 grand in stamp duty, it suggests to me that uh, he's a bloody wealthy argy. Uh, and he's a wealthy argy, but you don't get wealth. You don't become a wealthy argy by giving away 200 grand to the government. No, no, but won't this be perceived by people? Uh, you know, there's already people who are angry at the, the 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 growing divide between rich and poor as a result of the asset bubble, as Boris been looking after his rich mates. Well, maybe, but you know. They, they could have said the same against Thatcher. And the reality is under Thatcher, you, you know, even though the rich got extraordinarily rich, everyone got richer. And so, I mean, you know, part, unless you lived in, you know, Newcastle or something. But the, the, can, so yeah, the, yeah. the housing bubble that Thatcher created, you know, suited most people. Mm. OK, final question. I'm not, I don't necessarily agree with it. I, I just... I don't like house prices. I don't like what it's turned this country into where, you know, you know, house is like your status symbol and, you know, it's just horrible. But I just don't like the housing market. But I, don't I'm you not perceive that the, the, since the financial crisis, the growing gap between rich and poor, between young and old, caused by the asset bubble and caused by the fact that real wages haven't gone up unless you, you happen to work in financial services in London, is that not something that worries you about society? Yeah, it's terrible. It's awful. You know, this whole thing of you, young people not being able to buy a house, it's ridiculous. Young people, and, and, and in order to be able to pay the bloated rental prices, having to sell their bodies on sex, uh, for sex uh, to dirty old men. And that's a phenomenon which has been created by the asset bubble, hasn't it? I uh, wasn't aware of that, but it doesn't surprise me. You've missed out. Speak to some, uh, speak to some, uh, some of your friends. There were a massive increase in graduates. Uh, uh, young men and women having to sell their bodies online on both sides of the Atlantic and just be looked after by sugar daddies because rental prices have gone up so much. Well, it's just horrible. The landlord... It is. What's the thing? You invest your money. What's the Gary Lineker quote about football is a game play between uh, uh, two teams of 11 and then Germany wins? 
whatever the quote was. You could say the same about, you know, that investing. Investing is like, um, you know, finding companies with good prospects and investing money in the speculating capital and the landlord wins. Yes, indeed. On the final thing on speculating, Neil Woodford, uh, misunderstood genius, just a tad unlucky, or someone who's done some very bad things. I don't. I haven't followed the story, Tom. I don't know. Ugh, disappointing again. Sitting on the fence. Okay, Dominic. No, I'm not. I, I just do not know. I just don't know. Do you invest in unit trusts? Yeah, I've got a few. I've got. I can't even remember the names I've got. I've got. What have I got? The Capital Gearing Trust, the Ruffer Trust, Pantheon, in Polar Insurance, a couple of others. If you had to bet them on small cap, the uh, something small caps one. <laughs> uh, you are you're a lesson to all of us in monitoring portfolio. If you had to invest everything you own in one asset, what would it be? Gold. Okay. On that note, thank you very much, Dominic. Uh, we'll speak again soon. All right. Cheers, Tom. Wow. Well, Dominic Frisbee, the only man in the world without an opinion on Neil Woodford. But he has an opinion on more or less everything. I'm very sorry. Dominic won't be standing at the next general election for the Brexit party. I'm sure he would add uh, great amusements to the campaign trail. Of course, he did put me on rather on the spot there. I wasn't expecting him to ask me questions about my libertarian views. Uh, he asked me, what do I think the age of consent would be? Well, of course, I think of my own daughter, uh, Olaf, aged 18. Rather worry that uh, uh, she's had a boyfriend and the, the horse may have bolted in this respect. Uh, uh, but uh, I think long and hard about what the age of consent should be. I think about Olaf and should we say 28? Does that seem reasonable to you? Anyhow. Enough of Dominic Frisbee. Uh, we will get him back on when Bitcoin crashes, as it inevitably will. Uh, I find it hard to believe that it can be taken seriously as a currency when it is and has been so incredibly volatile. Within the space of the past year and a half, you could have bought Bitcoin or sold Bitcoin at under $4,000 or at almost $20,000. For something to be accepted as a currency, uh, it has to be seen as a stable means of exchange, a stable store of va value. What, why currencies go to rack and ruin is when they lose that ability. No one trusts them anymore. Think of Weimar Germany as an extreme example, or uh, indeed of Zimbabwe uh, under Robert Mugabe, and I suspect under his successor as well. I have, as somewhere here, a Zimbabwe $1 trillion note. There were times when, as in Weimar, uh, people were taking a wheelbarrow full of notes of $100 million notes. You, you would have them in a brick of $100 million notes. You take a wheelbarrow and you buy uh, half a pint of beer uh, or a loaf of bread. Uh, that is what happened in Zimbabwe when hyperinflation took hold. No one trusted the currency. Now, of course, Bitcoin is not at the stage of being the Zimbabwean dollar uh, or whatever the currency was in Weimar, Germany. I suspect some ver version of the mark. 
But how can you really trust something as a currency? I'm going to sell my house. My house is worth whatever my house is worth. Uh, I'm happy to sell it to you in pounds because I know that even if I leave the pounds in the bank for a year or so, uh, when I would go and buy another house or go and buy other goods, they would have hold most of their value. Imagine you sold your house. Let's just say you sold your house for uh, uh, half a million dollars in Bitcoin a year ago. That was when Bitcoin was trading at uh, twenty thousand dollars a unit. So you sold it for half a million quid, uh, and you now wake up and you still got the same amount of Bitcoin. But uh, at some stage, that was worth only a hundred thousand quid. Uh, it's now worth just under two hundred and fifty thousand quid. How on earth? Uh, which fool would sell their house? Uh, in Bitcoin, which fool would do any material transaction in Bitcoin when it shows such volatility? That is why I find it hard to take it seriously as a, as a currency. I know Dominic has great arguments as to why it should be a currency, but I can't see it as a currency because it is not a store of wealth. And also because it is not a store of wealth, because so many people have been burned on it, uh, you're going to find it very hard for people accepting it as a means of exchange. I can sell my house in pounds. I can sell them in dollars. I can sell my house probably in euros. Uh, and uh, you could find people who would transact on that basis. But are you you're going to find that many people willing to do large scale transactions in Bitcoin when its value is so uncertain. Uh, I may be a dinosaur, a relic of a bygone age, but I find it very hard to take Bitcoin seriously. Anyhow, uh, enough of Dominic Frisbee. We'll have him back, as I say, when Bitcoin crashes next time, asking him to explain his views. Maybe we'll get him back during the general election, which looks uh, to be coming this autumn. Now let's talk uh, about something completely different with my second guest. My second guest this week is Cathal Friel, who runs a company called Open Orphan on the AIM Casino. Uh, I should declare at this stage that I am a shareholder. Uh, the shares are around five and a half, six p. Uh, we'll find out what the market cap is later. Shamefully, I couldn't tell it to you now. Uh, so I am a shareholder. Uh, that's the uh, uh, declaration. Uh, Cathal, uh, open orphan, what is the market cap at 6p? It's about uh, 17 million, Tom. Okay. It, it, it used to be. Now, the open orphan has not always been called open orphan. It was called Ven Life or something? Yeah, Ven Life Science PLC. That um, was a total dog. Absolutely. Uh, share price went from 23p to about 1.5p when we got involved, myself and my colleague Brenton Buckley, last December. So fortunately, we did a, another. There's a third reverse takeover we've done. The first one, as you probably know, was Fast and Oil and Gas 2012. Second reverse takeover is Amrit 2016. This is our third one. So really what we do, reverse involves change in the company name. So, But the company known today is Open Orphan PLC was formerly known as Van Life Science PLC before the 20th of June. Now, Van Life, I mean, unlike many companies on the AM Casino, it did actually have some revenues. Uh, revenues in 2018 were what, 10 million, 12 million? 14.5 million euros. 14.5 million euros, but uh, needless to say, it, it lost money. Uh, what did Ven do? Yeah, Ven was a small, lose money. 
Yeah, exactly. Venn is a small CRO. That's been a clinical research organization. And basically, they help run trials for bigger pharmaceutical companies. And also, in two arms, it also had a preclinical consulting arm based out of Breda and Holland. So basically, the CRO is based at the Paris office. And west, about an hour west of Amsterdam, a small town called Breda, they have uh, preclinical work, which is basically a fancy name for early stage consulting the pharmaceutical companies. So yeah, last year, 14 and a half million between the two of them. It didn't lose a huge amount of money. We would have been straight with you. We came in, we pushed a lot of this year's losses back into last year. So, but over a period of four or five, six years, the reason it seems a dog, it never really focused on making money. These small clinical research organizations should throw off pre-tax 25, 30% on turnover. This one has never done that. Why is that? Uh, greedy management, incompetent management, or a combination of the two? Uh, probably actually the fifth and all three, and say just maybe could be better run, and that's probably okay. a safer one. Greedy Incom management, probably not. It would be probably the management team and the existing team would have been paying themselves below the average, uh, but maybe some combination. But our view is that look, it doesn't need a huge bit of work to fix it, but it certainly does need fixing as we speak. Okay, so they were paid uh, uh, less than the going rate, but judging by the results, they were paid perhaps a fair amount. What, um, in terms of fixing it, what can you do and how quickly? Well, how do you stem losses in any company? One, you reduce costs, or two, you increase revenues. And being frank, we're working, basically working on both. Reducing costs just today, we've managed to offload uh, a floor of one of the buildings or in the process of it. Uh, and it's, being frank, it has too much office space. Uh, so we are actively trying to reduce some of the costs without maybe upsetting the apple cart and the people factor. And we're very actively trying to get more revenue through the business. We're very optimistic uh, between now and the turn of the year that it will have it in a much better shape than what we got it in June. So are you saying that by Christmas, uh, the, the business which you inherited, uh, not the business you brought into it, the business you've inherited uh, will be running profitably? Correct. That's the target. Now, we're, that is the plan to try and get it the cash flow positive. Is that going to take us three months, six months, or nine months? It has to be something in those three increments, and that's and the target you, we've set ourselves. And would you believe that going forward, on a say two, three-year view, you could get uh, a business doing 14 million sales, uh, delivering uh, uh, a gross profit of um, my maths is shocking, but shall we say three and a half million? That being 25 percent. And, and your PLC costs will be? Again, we're trying, like every PLC I've been involved with, we try and keep the PLC costs minimal. But we're looking to increase the turnover substantially beyond 14.5. The whole model of Open Orphan acquisition number one was acquire Van, 14 million turnover, we acquired it for 4 million. Uh, acquisition number two should come this side of Christmas. And acquisition number three early next year. We really want to increase the turnover substantially. Organic growth is slow and difficult. Um, acquisition growth is much, much easier to do in this space. 70% of acquisitions destroy value, Cathal. Yep, totally agree. Uh, however, in some cases, if we look at our friends, Brendan Buckley has just come from Chief Medical Officer of Icon. It has moved its market cap and share price tenfold over a period of eight years, 800 million to 8 billion by being careful. Now, mind you, they're much bigger, but taken on acquisitions, and you've hit the nail on the head, single PLC costs, single central costs. So basically, bolting on acquisitions that bring us somewhere, rather than bolting on acquisitions just to build a, a big structure up. Does that make sense? 
That does. In terms of the cash position, you raised four and a half million when you reversed Open Orphan into uh, then, and you flogged some legacy shares in some other piece of uh, rubbish uh, for a half a million. So, what is the cash position now? The cash position now, probably not at liberty to say exactly what it is. We'll have interims coming out in two or three weeks, but you can take it the cash position is, is healthy. We are not burning through cash. We say we raised four and a half million, the cost has to come out of that. Uh, and we raised 550 from a legacy position. So look, we're in good shape. Uh, I'd say, look, uh, you and other people might wonder, uh, are we going to do a place anytime soon? No, we have no plans to do any place anytime soon. We are getting busy now in September on talking to our shareholders, talking to the market. Um, but we, we certainly have enough cash to keep us going for the current plans on the slate. Okay, you talked about, we'll talk about uh, uh, speaking to the market in a second. Uh, you talk about an acquisition this side of Christmas. Would that be from cash resources? Are we talking about uh, a bolt-on? Or are you talking about issuing a whole load more confessing? Uh, a combination, but primarily the main combination would be issuing equity, as you say, a whole load of confetti. But the people we will be buying and the people we're talking to uh, buy into the strategy of becoming part of the bigger entity. So it won't be a case we'll be issuing shares willy-nilly. Uh, I personally put the guts of two million of my family's savings and investments into Open Orphan to get it this far. Uh, I and Raglan, which is myself, remain as the biggest shareholder. So we're going to be very careful. I'm not going to dilute that position endlessly raising shares. We'll give a small bit of cash up front for the acquisition. We have a formula. And then uh, some confetti, to say, for year one, some confetti for year two. The acquisitions were paid for over a three-year basis, but primarily in equity. Okay. And in, in terms of the sort of scale, uh, if you're talking about small organic growth for the core business now, one might hope that full-year sales this year come in at 15, 16, or that sort of level. What sort of sales would you bolt on with the first acquisition you're targeting? The niche we're going for, Tom, is small companies, four to five million turnover, six million maximum. They fit onto our business like a glove. That'll be small companies based in the continent, maybe small companies based around the UK. Uh, that size, there's not a huge amount of bars for them because they're subscale. They require a head office. So as you've said, we already have one of those. So yeah, small consulting companies, four to five million turnover, people who are looking for a partial exit, who we really want to join up with us with the view of us, all of us exiting some years down the road together. So but maybe if, issuing shares, but on an annualized basis. But if you're buying consultancy business, you're buying people. Isn't that a problem that these are assets who walk out the door at five o'clock each day or in uh, the public yeah, sector, yeah, three o'clock uh, each day? Yeah, yes and no. Uh, for instance, we bought, uh, Van acquired a company in Breda uh, in Amsterdam, outside Amsterdam. It's a small consulting company. It was called Kinesis. Uh, three years later, 80% of the staff are still there. They're consultants. So I think it depends on how you integrate them. Uh, you're absolutely right. Some of the real rainmakers might leave, but our plan with them is to add on, incentivize them with uh, incentive plans to keep the real rainmakers to stay with us. But to be and that would be by, industry. That would be by the giving industry. them shares uh, after one year, two years, and, hope, and tying them in also, locking them Correct. in. Correct. Uh, anybody we issue shares have a, at least a two-year lock-in post. So they'll get shares after 12 months, two-year lock-in. So really you've locked them in for 36 months. Got it. Okay, so if you did the first deal and it was six million of sales, uh, you'd then be looking pro forma. You go into calendar 2021 
with sales in excess of 20 million, you should be doing a gross profit of 5 million quid. Correct. And that's where it gets interesting. And that's where we've got, I would say, a real company in our hands. Five million quid, and uh, uh, however you um, you know you, you you mess around with PLC costs, that should be pre-tax of three and a half, four million. Correct, and then attribute the usual ten times profit multiple, twelve times whatever, yeah, and you you'll see who the value we're 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 trying to reach out to. You're talking about a market cap of forty to forty-eight compared with a market cap of seventeen today, but obviously there would have to be shares issued for the acquisition. Uh, the fear in the market, I suspect, is you put out an RNS today, uh, you're going to be a busy boy traveling around the UK, uh, presenting at various evenings with Shares Magazine and Proactive and uh, uh, various other folks. Uh, people might see this is aimed, this is just a ramp ahead of a, an imminent placing. No, uh, and I can hear where you're coming from that, Tom. And say we raised the four and a half million earlier this summer, plus 550. Most certainly not, and I think you, uh, one, can hold me on notice that if we ramp and there's absolutely no placing this side of Christmas or this side early next year, that much I can put my hand on my heart. But what we are trying to do is that we did say we would talk a lot to the market. Uh, we did say we'd engage with a lot of parties. We've been really busy in August bedding things down. So I think now through September, it's only fair for us to reach out and meet some of the investors at different events uh, and tell them, exactly where we are and what the plans are, but making it very clear there is no placing anytime soon coming up. Okay, well, if there's a placing, obviously, we'll uh, send some of Brian Kinane's friends from West Kerry around to see you. Um, we will hold you to that. Is um, I'm just confused. Why would you need a placing? I'm sorry, I'm being really dim here. Let us say you make this acquisition. The shares you issue for the acquisition, they are going to be um, uh, uh, going to the vendors. You've got cash in the bank. You should, by 2020, in the enlarged business, be generating cash. Why would you need to issue fresh equity to other investors? Correct. And that's why I say, Tom, I'm being very straight with you, uh, without a hesitation, saying no placing anytime soon. Uh, and anytime soon, this next four, five, six months. So, no, we're in good shape. Any company we buy, it'll be primarily for equity. That'll be spread over three years with parties locked in for 24 months post to receive it. So, look, our business model at the moment, we don't see any need to be raising additional equity. And so you won't uh, be, if there yeah. are shares being issued, they will be to buy additional businesses. They will not be issued uh, uh, to the market. Correct. That That is the plan in the immediate future. We, we want to use our equity uh, to acquire companies. Uh, we want our equity to be strong. Uh, we don't want to have a, a soft equity price. So uh, there again is why we're out talking to people, letting them know this is the plans. As you know, no news. We've had no news in August. Uh, we took the company control on the 28th of June. Our share price was 5.6 uh, with a bit of news flow. I was a, a busy boy in July talking to some of the market. It went up to 8.3. Being straight, it probably overshot itself a bit and got ahead of itself. With no news flow in August, it ticks back down again to five, five and a half or six. Our belief is that with, uh, over the coming months, when people understand our model, we will see uh, growth in the share price in the weeks and months ahead. Okay, um, it just uh, d d uh, uh, clarifying a little bit here, um, the um, what the terms of the shareholder base, because you did the RTO of um, uh, uh, then, what percentage of the shareholder base is in free hands? Because I know that most of the people from Open Orphan are locked in. So what is the actual, of that 17 million market cap, what is the free float? 
Yeah, the, yeah, it's a very good question. It's actually quite tight. Um, the open orphan is on the original deal. Uh, Venn was four million market cap. Open orphan was uh, five point seven. Everybody in open orphan are locked up for got to three years, so that's that gone. So of that four million, we then raised four and a half million new money. The four and a half million new money are predominantly institutions. Some of existing institutions, some new ones. So really, that four million is a free float, which, do the sums, is about a 27, 28% free float, really. Uh, and that is the group that they are made up primarily of small individuals uh, who I think are hungry for news to see what's going on. Some of them have been in since 23p. Some of them have been in since 1.5p last year. Some of them bought when it was tipped earlier this year, 23p. Some would have sold when it ran up to 83 so we're just trying to generate uh, liquidity and interest for but, private investors. Sorry, we're a bit for interrupting. Um, two questions on the back of that. You say institutional investors back this placing. Uh, that phrase, institutional investors, is one that is uh, uh, widely abused on AIM. Uh, a bucket shop is classified as an institutional investor. Um, uh, uh, you know, Chris Oil is classified as an institutional investor by some people. Uh, are they really institutions? Yeah, okay. Have fund managers. No, no, look, a very good question, uh, Tom. Look, normally the small cap one does the rounds, and this is very mind, I'm a former stockbroker myself, around all the small cap, I'm not putting names on them, small cap brokers. Uh, you raise three, four hundred thousand of each of them, and they all try and trade out days or weeks. Uh, we only engage with one small cap broker, that was our own broker. Uh, and Who is one your broker? Party one, uh, Ardent Stockbrokers. And Arden wouldn't really be known as the group who uh, would do what you've mentioned earlier. They're kind of more institutional focused. They're trying to build a decent business themselves. So, yeah, it's public information, the top three or four who came in, uh, institutions. So, no, we, we certainly, uh, we can make it clear, we did not do the rounds of any of the small cap brokers, which we were quite lucky in that there was a decent appetite. We've been straight. We could have probably raised more than four and a half if we went to those small brokers, and we just took a strategic decision that four and a half, five million is more than enough for this part of the journey, uh, and we didn't need to reach out to them. We all know the small cap brokers have their use. Uh, they're very good for raising a bit of money, but they, they generally somebody would call it they're generally fast money. They've got to keep turning it. And at this point in time, we we felt with enough small small institutions, small private clients, and then. We didn't need to acquire a bunch more of them at this point in time. I, I would agree that Arden is not a, a place that uh, uh, is could be viewed as a bucket shop. Of course, it does employ the China fraud specialist Paul Shackleton, but uh, more on that on another matter. Is he your nomad? Yeah, uh, no, uh, our nomad is John Llewellyn. In okay, all right, okay, I'll let you off on that. That's a good job. Um, now, in terms of, sorry, back, back to the four million free float, which is the former uh, shareholders in Venn, presumably, actually, quite a lot of that are people who did buy at 15, 20, whatever. And if you bought two grand at 20, then um, your holding even today is only worth 500 quid. It's probably not worth trading, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. However, when we got to 8.3p, people were saying, well, I've got back half my position at 8.3. If we were that and did a bit more news flow in August, we could have used about a 12, 13, 14p. So I think a lot of those people have decided, well, new management team, these boys and girls have put a big part of their, and let, I'm unusual, I write the check. Uh, so I put the guts of two million of my personal cash in. I also put 300,000 of my own cash into the 5.6p 
as party parts do with all the new investors and lock that up hard lock for three years. So I think those parties are kind of, yeah, they're giving us the benefit of the doubt. I think there are people whom we can see talking to them. I'll tell you more when we meet probably quite a few in the next few weeks of these investor evenings. I think a lot of them are giving us the benefit of the doubt, saying, right, let's see what you can do in the first six or nine months. And that's what we're kind of asking people, give us the benefit of the doubt for six or nine months. Uh, if we don't succeed, I'd be hurt the most, first of all, both professionally and financially. Uh, but I think most people would have felt, yeah, when it was down one or two P, they wrote it off, it wasn't worth selling. When we got to 8p in recent weeks, say, oh, this is looking interesting. Let's see what these boys and girls can do for us. Okay, a couple more questions on this. Uh, and please don't take this the wrong way. Uh, uh, you've known me long enough to know I can be a little bit rude. Um, with Amrit, you floated it, uh, and then you left, um, passing the buck on to some people who were um, not as capable as you. Is there a worry that you might uh, walk away again? No, and then, first of all, I think the current management team would uh, feel they're vastly more capable than me, Tom. Uh, look, back on there, uh, I put Amrit together. I hired Joe Wiley. Uh, I hired Rory Nealon. The two, that was the CEO and CFO. They belong like a house on fire. They're absolutely outstanding people. Uh, why did I walk away? Uh, the entire board of Amrit were professional, seasoned pharmaceutical people. And uh, I think a bit like yourself, you know me, I'm a bit of a big personality. Joe was probably even bigger. There's probably room for one big personality in each small cap PLC. And I think I was proven I did sell a small amount of shares. I think, to be honest with you, I'm probably going to be a buyer of the shares in the coming weeks. If I buy shares in Emirates, I'm sitting at 8.9%. It's disclosable. Uh, I'm really excited with Emirates. I think they, they took a little while, um, but in three weeks, four weeks' time, they've guided the market. Emirates will approach 300 million market cap. And in the 1st of November, it will co-list on NASDAQ. So I think um, getting the company from 40 or 50 million to 3 or 400 million market cap is pretty exciting. And then that will generate lots of liquidity for people who can trade in or out. And then I say if Open Orphan gets a 40 or 50 million, we have a real company. Amrit at four or 500 or 300, that's a seriously real company. So no, I, I'm really excited what the guys have done. It took time, uh, but I think they've, they're hopefully proven their worth as we speak. Okay, so you stepped away from the board, but not from the company. Um, would the intention uh, uh, be with Open Orphan that when you get to a certain stage, you might again uh, uh, decide that you step aside from the board, uh, or are we just thinking too far in the future here? No, very good question, Tom. I think you know me long enough. You probably know the answer to that. Uh, my wife tells me I have attention span of an app. I think I'm pretty good at putting these things together. Uh, doing an RTO, you know, is very difficult, all time consuming. So, no, I think, look, within Open Orphan, if there's a better management team out there or a, a better leadership team, uh, we're all yours. Uh, I'd say that I'll stick at it for 12 or 18 months. This is not going to be a lifetime. I think the most important part is sometimes management teams fall in love with companies and think they deserve to be there. I'm the opposite. I think management teams just to last as long as a better one arrives on the, on the scene. Does that make sense? That does. Presumably, though, you're, uh, you would need to get uh, two or three acquisitions under your belt and have a company doing uh, 30 million plus in sales uh, and profits of six, seven million quid before uh, the time would come for you to step down. Correct. That would be the plan. Or who knows? We're in a very exciting space. If somebody came in and I believe all public companies are in the window, all companies are for sale. If, who knows if somebody came in left field uh, and said they want the owner open open, I would say, where do I sign? 
So that that don't underestimate. Depending on the price, I hope. Correct. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, substantially ahead of IPO price. We're not selling, but and we're not. Don't, don't get me wrong. That, look, that would be. There's nothing involved like that. But my role would be to get it to a good place, as you say yourself. Maybe get a much better management team, or maybe get a much better ownership team. I think I'm good at putting them together, getting them up and running, uh, keeping some law and authority about how to run a company, and let's see where we go from there. Okay, as a veteran of the AIM space, do you think companies are, or I mean, Amrit, I think, is answering this question. When you get to a certain size, is AIM the place where you can necessarily uh, um, deliver the most value in terms of share price? Uh, because too many people regard it as a casino. I think if you ask the Amrit management team, uh, being straight with you, they much prefer to be in NASDAQ. I think if you're a pure pharmaceutical company with the risk of drug trials, you're better off having, uh, if you look at uh, some of the dual listing, AIM and NASDAQ, uh, GW Pharmaceuticals is a great example. Uh, but if you're a services company, I think AIM is a good place to be. We're also dual listed on the Euronex exchange, which is quite interesting. It means somebody in Amsterdam, somebody in Paris can buy shares in Open Orphan today as easy as they can buy them in AIM. So I think, look, if you're purely pharmaceuticals, uh, yes, you need a NASDAQ listing. If you're purely services where we are, AIM is as good a place as anywhere in my books. Okay, you're a company with uh, obviously uh, Irish roots, British, uh, uh, Dutch uh, roots. Um, are you at all worried about uh, uh, Brexit? No, I think, Tom, and the whole country today has a view on Brexit. Half of them love it, half of them hate it. My view would be the, uh, the opposite. It reminds me of the Millennium Y2K bug. I ran a software company in 1998-99. We all thought the world was going to end in, with the Millennium bug in 2000. Six months beyond it, people look back to what it was all about. I just think Brexit's one of these things. Uh, it's causing a bit of chaos. People will look back in six months' time and say, well, what was all the fuss about? I think Brexit will come, things will go ahead, and life will all get on with our lives in three, six, nine months' time. And I just think it's a, it's a big talking point at the moment, but like most people in business realise the end of the world is not nigh. Life will go on, business will figure a way of doing business, and life will continue. Okay, now long term for uh, Open Orphan, uh, what is what is the sort of the, the exit plan? You did talk there about if someone comes along. Um, at what stage do you put yourself in the shop window? Uh, when do you think, at what sort of size do you think you would uh, would be the critical point uh, uh, for being in the shop window? Who knows, Tom? I think any company that's listed in the public market is kind of permanently in the shop window. Services company tend to either buy companies or get bought. Whereas in Amrit's case, there is less probably buyers for a loss making pharmaceutical company. But a small company like Open Orphan, we either will be buying companies or somebody will buy us. It's kind of as binary as that. Who knows? Is that a year away? Is that two years away? Three years away? We don't know. Uh, I think we either continue bolting on or we get bolted on. It's as simple as that when it comes to services. Okay, now I'm, I was just, I'm being rather stupid here again, but I have to ask, uh, let us assume that uh, uh, Open Orphan is making a pre-tax profit of 2 million, 3 million, 4 million, 5 million, whatever it, it is. Does, does that equate to cash? I mean, do you get paid up front uh, or do you get paid? What page of the cycle? Should you, be, yeah, should you yeah. be a prodigious cash generator at this point? When you're profitable, will you be generating your profit? Not at this point where we are today. But yes, the beauty of a small services company, particularly in the pharmaceutical space, 
there are there, with all of them there is between 20 and 30 percent upfront payment in the contract so you get paid in advance and then as the contract goes forward you get paid time and material on a monthly basis so they're completely cash accretive that's where most of its peer groups most of uh, open orphans peer groups big and small trade on two to three times revenues not 10 to 15 times profits because they do throw off cash then unfortunately never got that position because it was heavily undercapitalized being frank it wasn't could have been better run so yeah it, cash up front on signing the contracts cash payable and every month uh, and there's no risk attached to them so we're not carrying risk on a balance sheet they're not particularly fixed price contracts so yeah no they should it should come together very nicely i say and all the competitors and again just to cut across their time all our competitors we did 14 and a half million last year Virtually every other small pharmaceutical services company on AIM uh, and in the private sector trade two to three times revenue. We're just barely above one times revenue as we speak. So you can see where we're quite optimistic of getting uh, Open Orphan into a much higher rating in the weeks and months ahead. The reason that you, of course, were on only one times revenue is that perennially you were at death's door in terms of the balance sheet because you were losing money. Correct. And again, part of the reason I've got two million tied up in this company, uh, I personally had to pay the wages in the end of March when I was only a, a non-exec chairman. I put 250000 starting because then went that tight in cash. And last December, I fronted up on my own pension fund. There was a million pounds sterling uh, loan note we put into then to stabilize the ship last December. Uh, a good chunk of that was my cash as well. So, uh, yes, that's where I got really interested. Well, uh, this company needs a small amount of cash, not a huge amount of cash, but with a bit of a steady hand, the tiller. And that's why I stepped forward as a CEO. I uh, haven't been around enough of these companies. So this needs a steady hand for six or 12 months to put it in a better place. Did, is that 1.25 million repayable or has it been converted into shares? No, it's, it's not, and again, it's not convertible. It's repayable uh, within two years at the end of the 24 months period. And you would expect that that would be repaid from the cash which the business is then generating? Correct. And that's not till the December next year. And so just to make this abundantly clear for people who uh, associate people doing proactive investors with the next fundraise, Open Orphan, assuming that you have got it to cash break even or better by Christmas, or indeed even if that lagged into next year, uh, you will not have to issue another share to fund the business. The only shares issued will be for acquisitions. Correct. And that's where St. Tom, in the next six months or so, like again, you, you and I know when people see a small cap company like myself out doing the rounds of uh, retail investor evenings, it's a ramp uh, up. There is no within the next two, three months. That is absolutely not our plan. Our plan is full steam ahead, issue shares for acquisitions, Beds on the company, get in good shape. Uh, and then next year is another year. Let's see what happens next year. We can't guarantee we know placing some stage next year, but I always believe give people a window for six months. There's absolutely nothing happening in the next six months. But there shouldn't need to be a placing. That's what I'm trying to get to, to pin you down on, on, on here. The, the shares could be should be issued for acquisitions, but for the business as is, there is no need for refinancing. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Good. All right. Well, I will hold you to that. Uh, where, where do your EGM held each year, just in case I fancied coming along and causing a fuss? Yeah, in London, in our um, auditor's office, in uh, just outside the city. 
I was hoping you were going to say Dublin there. Well, we'll, we'll work on that one. Uh, okay. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, have fun uh, meeting retail investors over the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. Tom, a pleasure as always. Look forward to talking further. See you soon. Well, thank you, Cathal. Uh, I think that was a pretty interesting podcast. As I stressed before, I own the shares. Uh, my view is that I would be right to be selling at 10 plus P. And I'm sure if you look at the maths there, uh, look at the profitability that the company could or should and indeed will achieve going forward, you can see why the shares will be in double figures uh, sooner or later. Now, uh, my next guest uh, is the one that see, the people on the bulletin board seem to be frothing about. Uh, I hope you enjoy this interview. I hope you feel that I was hard enough on him. Uh, as I've said earlier in this show, if you ask CEOs soft questions, you learn nothing. They can just repeat what's in RNSs, repeat what's in presentations. You learn absolutely nothing new. You only learn more about a company, about a CEO, if you give the guy a really hard time. And I think I did give this guest a fairly hard time. I don't own shares in the company, uh, but I've known uh, David Bramhill for an awfully long time. I would count him as one of my friends, uh, but that doesn't mean to say that I haven't got some hard questions for him. I noted earlier uh, that some podcasts exist because companies pay to appear there uh, and get our soft questions. That's not a business model we do. It's not something I'd even consider. Uh, uh, it would uh, bore me rigid having to do that. It is financial journalism stroke prostitution. It's just not my bag. Uh, we're able to bring you this podcast for free. Uh, thanks to the kind sponsorship uh, this week of Yorkville Advisors uh, LLC, an American company which has been going for 18 years, but also operates in the UK. Now, I know you are throwing your hands up in the air and going, oh, death spiral financing. I don't think that's really fair. Uh, yeah, sure, the company provides loans which are normally convertible into equity, uh, but this is a broad asset class. There are some providers out there who, frankly, should be in prison uh, for what they do. Uh, the crime would be, I think, dishonesty in the way they phrase their RNSs, uh, as well as usury in terms of the way that they extract a huge return and crucify the company's share price in the process. I shan't name those providers, but I think you know who they are. Uh, by contrast, Yorkville is uh, amongst the best of breed, uh, and they have been investigated by the SEC and found to be spotless, squeaky clean, top bananas. Uh, I've known the guys there for an awfully long time, and I would agree, they are uh, fundamentally honest individuals. Uh, and I think they do their business in a way where they work in partnership uh, with the companies. Sure, they make a good return, uh, but they provide finance to companies uh, in a way which, frankly, is often far less dilutive than the bucket shop placings we see all too often. Anyhow, thank you to Yorkville for sponsoring uh, this podcast. On with the show. My third guest today is David Bramhill, the boss of Union Jack Oil. For a more general perspective on the company, 
I refer you to my earlier podcast with him a few weeks ago. I did get one comment from one of David's more deluded shareholders saying that I gave him far too uh, tough a time. Uh, they said yeah, I should. <laughs> they said that this particular individual told me on Twitter that I shouldn't ask difficult questions which try to put people on the spot. I should just give nice, easy questions which allow them to say uh, uh, how cheap the shares are. Uh, uh, for those people looking for those sort of interviews, I suggest you just tune into Vox Markets. I wouldn't say uh, that. David. I, I try not to promote. Okay. All right, David. Now, um, uh, let's start with an easy question for you. Um, I know you're not a fracker, but you do know a lot about the oil industry. Yes. Uh, up, here in the, up here in the northwest, we've had reports that the Quadrilla site uh, uh, has been hit by not one, not two, but three earth tremors, uh, mini earthquakes. I don't, we don't normally associate the northwest of England with earth tremors. It seems to me a remarkable coincidence that a company is fracking and we get a, a series of earth tremors in the region. Is this just an unfortunate coincidence? Difficult to know. There are always tremors going on. A few, probably thousands of earthquakes going on anywhere around in the UK, probably even underneath me. There's always something going on. Uh, have various faults in that area. Whether it's fracking caused it, I really, really don't know. I, as you know, in America, I fracked hundreds of wells, literally. Never had an issue. No problems with earthquakes or anything like that, but the jury's out, and it, it is with me as well. I'm not saying I'm purely tepid on fracking. We, as you know, Union Jack, we're not involved, and we probably never will be. And that's a 99% surety of that, unless somebody takes us over and decides they want to frack or something like that, which isn't on the cards at the moment. So it's a difficult, you say an easy question, Tom, it's not really that easy, I, I don't know. Uh, it just seems it just seems to the layman that this is a remarkable coincidence that Quadrilla is fracking and all of a sudden people start getting earth tremors. The, the 0.5 and the 1 and the 1 and a half, that's the equivalent of a bus or a lorry driving by your house. A was it 3.2? I can't remember. It's either 2.9 or 3.2. That is big. There's no argument on that one. Right. I think Quadrilla say, I don't know, I don't really know the whole, I don't know the fact, so it's really hard for me to comment. But There was definitely one which started with a two, um, one of the three trams started with a two, which is a lot more than a lorry driving past your house. Absolutely, but were Quadrilla actually fracking at that time? They were, yes. Only, only the BGS or the meters or... I can't comment, Tom, but, you know, as I say, fracking, I'm tepid on anyway. So I I wouldn't, if that's what they do and they want to do it, then really, I suppose, it's up to them and the general public to sort out amongst themselves. But if many more of these instances, it's not going to help the cause of those who wish to frack in the UK, is it? Well, say that again, no. <laughs> um, okay. No, no, it's not. No, it's... Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's years away. Maybe it's months away. I don't know. Okay, let's get let's go with another easy question. 
Um, one of your uh, uh, more high-profile investors, uh, uh, Mr. Christopher Williams, known as Chris Oil, uh, had been telling us, and his friends had been telling us, that shares in Union Jack were getting to go to a penny or even higher. I see last week that Mr. Williams sold a large number of shares at less than 0.3 of a penny. Uh, does only that... Saying, um, only, saying, only saying it's good. He had low thoughts, and if he thought they were only going to go to a penny, but yeah, okay, uh, but Tom. Do, does it does it sort of uh, worry you that Mr. Williams is, uh, seems to be less optimistic? Why is he selling so many shares when he thinks why, they're cheap? Why would he be less optimistic? If this is like Tom, you would know that I've probably been inundated since he made that TR one on Friday, and if you read the bulletin boards, uh, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories on it, and that. I, I don't swear like you do, not in public anyway, but it drives me nuts because he is an investor. I cannot control who buys our share. That's, you know that. You're in the game yourself. We, when we place shares to an institution, that institution places shares with clients. Whoever it was placed these shares with Chris Oil, Christopher Williams, and he buys them, and he's... he's but every right, every entitlement, I, I do know what you're saying. And is it right to be on, on blogs and saying, I'm, you know, I'm buying this? Not. What do you expect me to say? I can't comment and talk about the shareholder who's still a very, very big shareholder in our company. I, 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 I don't read the bulletin boards. Uh, because, and David, I would advise you for the sake of your health that you shouldn't read them either. Uh, because... Yeah, yeah. It's full of complete nut and nutters, and it will uh, uh, do nothing for your blood pressure. But uh, it just strikes me as odd that Mr. Williams seems to have been of the view that the shares were going to go to a penny or higher, and is suddenly selling a material number of shares at less than 0.3. Um, have you spoken to him? Has he changed it? I mean, obviously, I know you can't control the little fella. But... Right. Okay, it just... You can put that on record. You know, I know what you're saying, but I actually haven't spoken to him for months, and and he's made no effort to call me. And I can put and again on the record. The last time I spoke to him by telephone was very early February this year. Mm. Maybe he has repairs at the castle. We don't know about that. Now let's let's turn to West Newton. Yes. Um, when we spoke last, you were explaining how. Uh, this had the potential, we knew that there was gas there, but this had the potential to be a significant oil play. Now, again, some, some folks on, uh, 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 in, on New Media were uh, interpreting that, that it could be the uh, biggest onshore find in UK history, etc., etc., etc. Once again, Tom, I'm so pleased to be able to, to actually talk to you, because I know you ask these questions. And again, let me make it quite clear. This is still very, very early stage. It's a big programme. We've got 176,000 acres on site. Not saying that all of that will be explored by us. And I know the comments. I've seen them as big as which farm. How can it possibly be? It's not, I, I don't believe it's physically possible. They're not my comments or company comments. It could be a uh, Again, I've seen other people's RNS and saying it's the biggest discovery since 1973. We haven't said that. What I'd like your listeners to know are the 
very, very firmly on the ground. And there's still a whole bunch of research, drilling, sample taking, you name it. Everything that happens to try and make a discovery be worth money. But this is early stage. And I was on uh, I, oh, pod, uh, podcast with with one one company, not the box that you say, but proactive. And if you that, some of your listeners would like to listen to it. I said, this has got a long, long way to go, and we're on the bottom rung of the ladder, and that's true. And so that's, all, all That's not under-egging. There's still a whole bunch of work to get done before this gets proven up and people can put a massive tick in the box. Okay, I'll, I... Smoke, it, yes, I, I Okay, but, but uh, we might agree that the West Newton oil does not need to be uh, of the size which some of these lunatics on bulletin boards are suggesting for it to be uh, a material company maker for yourself. It could be, yes. Okay, can we say that the oil, uh, when, we, when you uh, put the RNS out last week, you talked about how there was a 45 metre uh, uh, zone of oil. Yes. Can you say that that is necessarily a commercial find at this point? Oh, uh, no. No. That mean, what it means is what it says. We've got a 45 metre oil column, which needs to be, we need to know everything there is to know about it. This is still research. It's very, very good. Let's make no bones about it. This is who even if I had a five metre oil column, I'd be over the moon. We've got a 45 metre oil column, and all that does is raises a lot more work to get done. That appears to be very, very, very good. 45 metre oil column, but we don't know, for instance, uh, that is a sort of vertical column. We don't know how far it extends, uh, what its flow rates are, etc., etc. Let me explain, if I may. I'm, I'm not giving anything away here when, oh, when give, raffling, give away what you want david no no when raffling shot what they call a 3d component uh, seismic that wasn't just a 3d which is very very good this as i mentioned earlier is 3d component which also shows you the extent of potential discovery whether it be oil or gas and also the window the area of how far this could be it, on the on the actual seismic does appear but it goes for a long long way now again in our rns we never gave the area extent in somebody else's rns they did give the area extent so somebody with any knowledge even a modicum of all knowledge knowing the aerial extent which is quoted can work out Cells, the actual potential oil discovery, the size of it, and even the gas. But we haven't said that. That's not so. As you quite rightly say, it all depend on the area. Now the area is according to what was put in the, in an RNS by some other company last week. But the area, that area, is only defined by 3D seismic. Uh, the the acid test of that area, 3D seismic may be a lot more accurate than it was in 1975. It didn't exist in 1975, but it was in the past. Um, but the only way you can prove it up to the satisfaction of a banker or, or, or a uh, uh, you in doing your forecast is by drilling, correct? Absolutely, of course it is. 
How much more? How much more? I mean, you say that you've uh, uh, plugged the well for the time being, and you're going away to analyse the data so far. Oh, we how haven't plugged it. it. We haven't plugged anything. The, you know, the well is wide open. It's just it's suspended. Suspended. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You suspended drilling pro tem whilst you go away and analyse the data. How long will that process take, and what what will you learn from that analysis? From the analysis, we will learn everything there is to know about that particular well, everything. But you're quite right. There are, there will need to be. Uh, this is this is in the public domain. There is, there is planning permission for another two wells on the West Newton B side, and that those wells, whether we draw one or whether we draw two, they are going to be the key to finalising this prospect, a West Newton prospect. Remember, there are other prospects around on this acreage which look very similar, but what, as you quite rightly say, what we need to do is get cracking on that West B ASAP. I can't give a timetable because we're after the operators. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. We need to drill because that, that well, the West Newton B, will actually penetrate, we hope, the cave formation, which is completely different, to, to the uh, Kirkham Abbey formation. So there could be even more oil, there could be another intercept uh, to add to the initial 45 metre find. Oh, there could be, yes, but let's not, you know, I don't like speculating. Honestly, Tom, you, you know that. There could be, yes, in answer to your question, there could be. But let's there might not be. But no, and there might not be. Okay, in terms of establishing the, uh, the the width, if you like, of this initial 45 metre discovery, you're therefore saying you need two more wells? I'm not saying you need two more wells, you need at least one. At least one, okay. If you, if, like, if you take, for instance, we already know the area of extent. We, we can see it on computers, and why wouldn't we? Because we're, we're a partner. So, you take a look. And it looks by the size of it, but it extends over a certain area. You can actually, it will tell you the cutoff point. It will tell you saturations. It will tell you the APIs. Just about everything that you could ever get. But you don't know until you drill, as, as you quite rightly said, that, that final well or final two wells, whether you can't can say. But what we know, we've got it so far, so far, so good. Still a lot of work to get done. It really, really is, does appear to be something special. But there's a lot of work still to be done. Okay, in terms of drilling, remind me, what is your percentage stake in uh, this uh, field? 16.665. Who are the other, who owns the rest? Uh, Rafflin. Connell. Yep. External shareholders. And Humber Oil and Gas, who've also got 16.665%. Okay. Um, what would be the cost of drilling a second or third well? Uh, for us, our share under a million. Under a million for per well or for two wells? Per well. Okay. So two million quid. I know you've raised a little bit of money, uh, uh, you know, relatively recently. Uh, to get to the second well, you'd have to do another raise, wouldn't you? I hope so, but not. Not now, obviously. Okay, but... but like, what, what, what would, would we need to drill another well? That well will not be drilled next month. And I know where you're coming from. Like, 
the question is, I've fed up to the back teeth about reading again, placing coming, placing coming. It's like you say, you're going to die. Of course you're going to bloody die. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All, all I can say to you is that there is no placing planned this moment in time. If we drill for two wells, and yeah, of course, and every company does it. Do you, what's the cash position as we speak? We, we've got all the money that we raised, we still got in the kitty. And, and the, so how, much, how much did you raise, remind me? We raised 1.75 and we had a lot more money on top anyway. Okay, so you could easily afford to drill another well from existing resources? Oh, of course we could, yes. Are we likely to see that another well within the next six months? I don't know. Right. I would like to think so. Right. So oh, you'd hope that within the next six months and that well would be funded? Oh, yes, that well would be. But if you were to need a third well in order to validate the size of the resource, uh, you would then at that point, and we are talking 2020 here, have to return to the market for fresh money. 2020, uh, what, what can I say to you? I can't. There yes. Was, there, there are other ways of funding, but why not? We, when we place our shares, we did a placing at 0.075, then did the next placing at 17. So everyone that came into that placing and existing shareholders made their money. We did a placing at 17. It went to 34. It's dropped back a bit now. But people are still making money. So I don't see any issue about raising money, whether it be three months, four months, or six months. Do you know what I mean? I, if, you, if you're asking me, are we funded, or everything that would need to be done at West Newton, I would say, of course not. But if you're asking me, are we funded for the programme we've got planned now, yes, we are. Would presumably, of course, if the second well came in with very positive results, uh, it would be a lot simpler to get a funding away for a third well. Uh, if the second well was disappointing, then you'd have to, uh, it would be more difficult. It all depends. I'm, I'm not hoping for a disappointment anyway, Tom, but, but it stands to logic. But if you're, it's all down to what, what's, what you've got on the sales pitch at that moment in time. Okay, now um, the 45 meter thing, you know, 45 meters is 45 meters. Uh, for those who are not experts in uh, oil analysis, are you, I think when we spoke last, you were indicating that after this well, you might be able to give some indication of the recoverable barrels at oh, this we field. We, we will do, of course we will. And this is what the CPR is all about. What will the, happen now, all the information will be given back to, I assume, Deloitte, who did the first one, it would make sense. And then they will come back. Because remember, this first well, Tom, was the biggest, again, not our world, but the biggest gas discovery since 1973. Onshore in the UK. It looks, you know, I can't put my hand on my heart and say, yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. But it sure got the symptoms of not being, it may well be a major gas discovery anyway, because because of the height of the column. But it certainly appears that maybe that first well was exactly the same as this well with an oil column in it. And why do we know this? We've had cores and tests. These tests are still ongoing now with the West New 2 core, 
and it does it, it was 250 300 meters away from the west even a1 i don't see how it can possibly be all gas in a1 i think there's oil there as well but we'll soon find out and we did indicate this it looks you know in our uh, rns last week we said it appears that the a1 well was, was oil as well Okay, in, in terms of the, remind me, what was the last Deloitte's Competent Persons Report valuation of uh, West Newton? Taking into consideration it was practically all gas, it was $310 million. Dollars? Yes. Okay, so that is roughly $50 million to you, which is uh, uh, slightly more than your market cap. Yeah. Uh, your view... Uh, is that the next CPR from Deloitte, which, what sort of time frame are we looking at? Again, Tom, this is all time, this is being driven by Rafflin, and, and please, anyone listening, don't think this is a fob off, really, really, really don't know. We've still got a lot of questions to be answered, there's still a lot of research being done, so I honestly can't put my hand on my heart. It'd be a terrible thing to say, well, we'll have the CPR in a month, and then Eight weeks later, ah, oh, you said it was going to be a month. I don't know. Okay, well, give me, give me, give me some idea, David. Help me here. Are we talking uh, one to two months, or six to ten months, or come in twenty twenty five? It won't be six to ten months. It, it, impossible. No, no. So we should expect, therefore, uh, sometime before Christmas, but we don't know when that there will be a new CPR from. Deloitte's and would you expect I know you are a gambling man so if you had to bet on it would you expect that CPR number to be higher or lower based on the drill results from West Newton 2 let me ask you that question I don't know I've, I've, I've got the gas column and then you've got an oil column so what do you think I don't know. I'm, I'm just a, a, a fail farm manager who once owned a pizza shop. You're the expert, David. Uh, should I say from that that uh, uh, your expectation is that it should be larger? My expectation would be, yes, of course. Okay. Yeah, but I, um, I, I can put my, my expectation is that it would be significantly larger, but I don't know. Everything is still going on. It's all down. It's all in the mix. One would have thought so. One would have thought that if you've got a gas column being valued, and then you say, oh, sorry, it's not a gas column, it's actually a significant oil column, and that CPR has to, unless there's something really, really, really wrong, it has to be a lot more. Yeah, indeed, that's, indeed. That's, that's logic, and I'm not giving anything, you know, for figures. I, I, we, 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 we work on it ourselves. We've got a good team we, internally. We, we know the oil in place, more or less. And, but this is down to Deloitte. You're pretty professional. You give somebody like that the information, they will give you the right answer. Mm. Okay. So um, if it is largely an oil flow, then remind me, uh, Alzheimer's kicking in here. Where is West Newton again? It's east of Beverly, which is, okay, so Beverly is north of the Humber. Okay. So it's uh, East Yorkshire. You've got it. Right. If it is largely, uh, uh, if we now establish that it's largely uh, an oil play rather than a gas play, or that is where most of the economic value lies, based on what you know now, is it likely that the oil is so great that you wouldn't be trucking it out, you would be piping it out? 
no, I, I, I wouldn't see. Again, this is all hypothetical, but I couldn't see a pipeline, to be honest with you. You know, when you've got trucks, you know, how much oil do you, you can only produce so much oil in a day. Mm-hmm. And it would be crazy to imagine, trying to imagine that figure now. It was impossible. Right. So the likelihood is that this will be an operation which will require a large amount of oil to be trucked out. Is there any uh, possibility that the residents of uh, this area, Beverly's got a you know lovely historic cathedral, Beverly Minster, isn't it? Um, yeah. And um, you know, it's sort of reasonably pretty part of the world. Is there any likelihood the uh, local residents will say that they, they really don't want all these lorries trucking oil out of it? But there are, no, say there are no local residents. There are about three or four houses locally. Mm-hmm. This is all. This is field. It's in the middle of nowhere. When I say you wouldn't want to be dumped, it's like where I live in the middle of bloody Exmoor. You wouldn't want to go out there on a cold night. So, you know, everything. As long as everything is done properly, remember you're not just you're dealing not just with, with residents. You're dealing with the HSE, the EA, the OGA. You know, you've got a whole bunch of people. And most of all, now I think, you know, going back to the residents, the Rathman do a very, very good job in keeping the community up to date. And they tell the story as it happens, which I think is good. You've got protesters out there, of course you have, but they're protesting against something else. You know, you see people out there saying, you know, no fracking, frack-free Lancashire and frack-free Portugal. Well, if they say frack-free Lancashire in Beverly, then they're, they're no, seriously misguided on a number of points. Those guys are there with their signs, so it's not it's not fracking. It's not Lancashire either. No, I know, but I said frack-free. You're taking, the Lancashire guys are over there. They're, they're, every, they're there with all their banners from, from all over. Mm. So... so you- you don't anticipate that, that, that if this is shown to be commercial, um, uh, you, would, you would assume, by the way, w- at what stage would you be declaring it commercial, after, only after World II? You can declare commerciality on a well. But that doesn't give you the whole story. It's easy to say that. What we need to know is to get as much information on West Newton as we can and my belief is that we need to do for B, the B site, drill a well there, and see see how big it is. And then you can put the whole picture together. But your belief is that based on, on, on a, if a CPR is going to increase the value from 300 million uh, significantly, uh, which of course is not a given, but it does appear likely, that your belief is that it is commercial, but you will only declare it commercial after the second well. Well, you, well or the third well, even. You the third well. You can, we're talking about, you're talking about a well, or you're talking about a project. When talking about the West Newton project as a whole, this is what would be the asset. The asset is saying, right, we've got the West Newton area, the West Newton project. In this project, it's X million, hundreds of millions, whatever, billion cubic feet of gas and all the other associated. Remember, you have to, it's a little bit like mine with the Jort code. At the moment, we have a contingent resource. And this is what will be the valuation done on a contingent resource. Once you've got a design for production, you then move the contingent resource into 
a reserve. You, you, you hear what I'm saying there, Tom? I do indeed, yes. It's a process. So I uh, keep, keep saying there's still a long, long way to go. There's still a lot of work to be done. If you're asking me do I have any fears on funding and all that stuff, no, I do not. Absolutely not. And, and we're still very, very early stage as far as I'm concerned. There's still a lot to learn about this. So far, as we said in the RNS, it looks really, really good. Can, can I just, I'm a bit, a bit confused. Yeah, okay. well, I understand how, it, how you could fund it to the point where you've drilled uh, uh, another two wells. Do you at this stage have any idea how much it would cost to take it from drilling those uh, additional two wells to putting it in production? At this moment, no. What are we talking to putting into production? Five million, 10 million, 20 million? Roughly. Oh, God, I don't know, Tom. It all depends. We, we haven't got all the information, so we don't know. You, know, you, could... you, you must have some idea. Uh, I mean, you know, let, but let, give me a range. Let me tell you, okay. At Wrestle, we've got the Wrestle Discovery, and we know that to put that into production, it's going to cost about 1.4 million for the whole lot, which will be shared between us. 1.4 million sterling. For one well, yes. Yeah. But when you're talking about something which might be a bit bigger, I say we're speculating on things. That, honestly, is just what I don't want to be doing. So far, so good. Lots of work still to be done. At the moment, that's all we can give. All the information to be given to shareholders has been given. Okay, but what you are saying here is that assuming that the second or potentially third uh, uh, exploration well show that this is a commercially viable project, yes. there will then be a need for additional funding to bring it into production. And we may, we may be talking two years here, three years out, no, well, I, that don't, I don't think be, uh, I'd be very disappointed if, if it was two years. I really would. Oh, so, so we're talking about uh, a second exploration well, some stage in early 2020, in all likelihood. If there is a third exploration well, that would also be in 2020. If all goes well, production by 2021? If we chose to do. But do you, let me put this to you again. I'm, I'm not trying to speculate, but do you honestly think Say we gave a, everything worked out as we hope, as we expect, and we come out with a really, really stunning end, end of project review saying X million barrels, X hundred million barrels, and don't take these as being figures, mm -hmm. but it's quite possible that that could be the case. On the other hand, it's quite possible that it's not that, because we still have a lot of work still to be done. But do you think for one minute that... With an asset, a resource, if something like that would happen, if that were the case, these are hypothetical figures, Tom, now, that if you had that sort of resource that you could command a billion dollars for, okay? That's the sort of upside which could, and again, don't take it to being that I'm saying that's what it's worth, I'm saying what it could be, yeah? Mm -hmm. So if you take out our percentage of that you're talking about quite a lot of money uh, you're saying if if you're saying that the recoverable oil was a hundred million barrels hypothetically uh valuing that's at ten dollars a barrel uh, uh it would be worth 160 million dollars to you 
So could you find your share of the development costs? Yes, you could very easily. Yes, we could. But I would honestly, I would have thought that if, if we can remember there are other projects surrounding which look like mirror images of West Newton. There's always a danger in neurology, though, isn't there, David? As we found yeah, with uh, the Angus Energy announcement about Brockham. We need, to, we need to shoot seismic over these areas, 3D, which there isn't at the moment. But I would have... Not, again, I'm not suggesting there's been people saying as, as talk, oh, Major's looking at the project. Look, there's always somebody looking at something. There's always somebody... Kick tire kicking, all this sort of stuff. You know, you're, you're never going to get that well, again. All speculation, but I, my, my view would be, if it was worth that much money at the end of the day, then hey, we would last two minutes. Mm. Mm. If, if this, this is all hypothetical on the, uh, uh, the the thesis that West Newton could potentially contain a hundred million barrels. Uh, you think that a, a field of 100 million barrels would attract the attention of a rather larger player? Well, if it were to be that, uh, of course it would. Is there, any, uh, is there any way that one can speculate, based on a 45-metre pay zone from one well, uh, that uh, this thing could contain 100 million barrels? It could do by working out and speculating. Yeah, anyone with... Again, in our RNS, we never gave aerial extent. Anyone with any knowledge of oil, it would have to be quite a good knowledge of oil, would be able to put formulas, special formulas like oil saturation, water saturation, if any, uh, aerial extent, gas compression. They'd be able to come up with a figure and say, I think that you've got, over this area, the potential for... X hundred million barrels of oil. So there is based on, uh, and the other company which did put out the aerial extent based on the 3D, which was that one, just for uh, just to humour me. Uh, I'm not going to humour that. I, you know, you know our partners are they own part of Raffin, but I'm not going to. Okay, what they, what, what, what that particular company wants to put out, they put it out. But what we do, we stick to. Is that rear bold? Oh, yes, it would be real bold, yeah. Yeah, okay, okay, good, good guess, good guess from the pizza shop <laughs> yeah. man. Right. Yeah. So based what, on Rhea Bold's rather ramtastic announcement, uh, uh, one can do the sums based on the, the 3D uh, seismic area in place, throw in a, nu a number of uh, calculations, and one can put a case that this discovery could potentially be hundreds of millions of barrels, but realistically... It will be irresponsible to do that until we have the next well. Of course it would. But it will give you an indication. Of the potential. Yep. Okay. And like I said, Tom, we, we you use the word ramtastic. What we don't want to do, all, all I want to do is to keep our shareholders informed and also be on the ground. It looks really, really good. I think we've got a terrific project. There's still a lot of work to be done. Simple as that. And I'm not, I refuse to be coming on anyone's and saying this is a bet, bigger saw discovery, bigger than which farm or as big. No, we don't know. Nobody. Okay, can I ask one final question, David? 
Yep. West Newton is, uh, I think we can now agree, is the crew, the jewel in your crown. Ha! <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. Okay. Oh, would you? Would you? Uh, okay. It may well be the jewel in your crown. Oh, oh, yeah. You have a number of smaller assets on, um, on all known facts. It is, of course, it's the jewel in our crown. Uh, okay. So we we've got we've got wrestle. That's going to go to planning. That will make us, if we get the planning permission on that one, that we on the inquiry, which. I'm not the second guess, but the council, the North Links Council, aren't putting any evidence in. So it would be highly unlikely, but not you can't nothing's ever hundred percent slide. But if that were to be the case, Tom, we could Death and taxes. production quite rapidly. Now this would give us you can work it out that if we do five hundred barrels a day, we would have hundred and fifty seven and a half, I think that's the right figure. Forgive me if it's a few barrels out, but it would give us a yearly income, I think, of about two and a half million quid. Our company takes a million pounds a year, and that's been the same practically for four years. Uh, we try and keep it around about that, and that, that's the intent. So if you start taking the cost of production in a new well, which would be between probably eight and twelve dollars, anyone can say, well, these guys are going to make a profit. That's with Bristol, but that's not enough because it would be not fast, but it would put us into a very, very low number of companies which are actually making profit on oil. But we also have Biscopore, and we're keen on that. We, we love that project. At the time when we joined the well, the Biscopore project was believed to be the biggest onshore prospect which remained untested. We've drilled this before well, and it still remains the largest onshore prospect untested. But not only that, we did find there was some oil in the Dynantia. Everyone, again, that's been RNS. So I wouldn't be writing off. I think we've got a nice, basic test of assets, which all need to work on. Uh, we like them, and I think shareholders like them. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in them. We wouldn't be throwing money at them at all. I think we're nicely, well, great, nicely balanced portfolio. I'm David? Yep. I, you say you're nicely balanced portfolio, but I, I always get this point with oil companies. Uh, I can accept there is a case for bringing Wrestle onto production so that the company is covering its costs and has a little bit money extra uh, 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 for uh, 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 whatever. Um, but surely it would then make sense just to throw everything at West Newton and for Biscothorpe to either be put on the back burner or sold to someone else so that you avoid early stage dilution with placings. You can throw everything at West Newton because that's where you're going to have the real value add. Not necessarily. You get, you, we've got value at West Newton. I, I'll be absolutely certain on that. But also we've got a very, very... If you had potentially one of the largest onshore prospects remained untested, you have to drill it. That's what we do. We're, we're not just a, a small production company. We're an exploration company, and that's what explorers do. It's like giving a microphone to a singer. Why do you need that? Because I want one. You need one. It's a microphone. It's what they do. And with, with us, we're an oil explorer. 
And that's what our shareholders expect us to do. Not sit on the money. When we go off and raise money, it's for a reason. A good reason. And nine times out of ten, it's drilling. It's never, we've never done, God forbid I ever have to, a lights on placing. That would be horrendous. That would be, but sometimes companies do hit hard times and they have to do this. And fair play to them. But, uh, what, uh, David, but if we could always, always, if we say we're going to explore, that's what we, that's our job. But if Biscothorpe is a, is a Biscothorpe may be a good prospect, West Newton has the potential to be a great prospect. Surely it's better to avoid, uh, to minimise the dilution ahead of West Newton being shown to what it is. And one way to do that would be to sell Biscothorpe. No, they fund no. West Newton without having to raise a single cent. There's no way that I'd sell. I'd sell Biscothorpe. Remember the times, the time frames for all these things. You're not talking weeks or months sometimes it can be over a year we all know that i'm not giving any secrets away so we, we do what we need to do that's the bottom line okay all right david thank you very much for your time uh, i look forward to the cpr report and uh, a significant uplift to show that uh, i'm not just a, a fail farm manager and pizza shop no, owner not i do I own a pizza shop anymore very, i must say you've been very good today tom there's been no swearing no bad language Oh, fuck it. I'm losing the knack. I'll speak to you soon. <laughs> well, thank you very much, David Brownhill. I thought that was a jolly good interview. I was almost tempted to buy a few shares. I'm not going to, uh, because the missus is more keen on redecorating the Welsh hovel and making it fit for human accommodation, and that's where my money will go. I said I'm getting a bit too old to buy shares anyway, but I am sorely tempted. I think David makes a good case. The one thing I would caution against is neurology. Uh, when talking about the West Newton field, uh, David talks about the current drilling programme, which is for one prospect on what is quite huge acreage. It is very dangerous to extrapolate and say, just because you found a significant column of oil, uh, or indeed a significant resource of oil within one part of the acreage, that you are likely to find another uh, similar discovery on another part of the acreage. You will remember that the biggest proponent of the neurology school of thinking is Mr. David Lenigas, who came up with what was branded Lenny Maths. Uh, you find X uh, barrels of oil uh, at one prospect in the wheel basin, Horse Hill. Uh, not that we actually have a conclusive uh, 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 figure on what the recoverable amount of oil in place is. Uh, but you find X, uh, David Lenigas promptly says, well, if you find X from one drill site, and I can't do an Australian accent, uh, given that we've got however many thousand acres, uh, you therefore uh, can safely assume that we have an oil discovery, which is uh, 100 billion barrels or whatever number he came up with, which is bigger than Saudi Arabia. Uh, that is classic Lenny maths. There is a case for using neurology uh, in terms of unexplored acreage. If you uh, uh, have a block, for instance, in the North Sea, which is adjacent to a existing producing well, which you know is producing X and Y and has a net present value of Z, 
You should say that that block of water next to it has some value when you're valuing a company uh, in terms of trying to do a DCF valuation, a discounted cash flow valuation. That's clearly impossible because you don't know what oil, if indeed there is any oil, is present within that block. So it shouldn't add to the net present value. If you're valuing the company just on a pure net present value basis, it wouldn't add to that net present value. However, you would say, well, if the net present value of the block which is producing is $10 million and you've got the adjacent block and there is some evidence that they're on the same structure, well, maybe you value it at $1 million. 10% of it, just on the neurology basis. Uh, that is because neurology doesn't guarantee a hit. We need only look back to Mr. David Lenigas's back garden and uh, events at Brockham. Uh, Brockham, Angus Energy drilled a well. Uh, Brockham is, as the crow flies, uh, about six miles from Horse Hill. At Horse Hill, within the Kimmeridge structure, uh, Mr. Lenigas and his friend Lion Steve Sanderson of UK Oil and Gas claimed, uh, or appeared to have detected, uh, a, a reasonable amount of oil. I suspect it will be a mom-and-pop operation. It will not be a gusher. But there is clearly some oil there, and it is almost certainly commercial. One would have expected. Therefore, that at Brockham in the Kimmeridge structure... Only six miles away, on the neurology basis, there would also be oil. Angus drilled and there was not oil. And that is the nature of the oil exploration industry. Neurology is a game you can play and it's something that you can use to construct a valuation for a business. But it is not guaranteed. It needs to be heavily risk-weighted. With respect to Union Jack Oil and Gas, uh, or Union Jack Oil rather, uh, I would suggest that there is no need to do neurology on the West Newton uh, 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 overall acreage. One simply needs to value the company on the basis of Russell Biscothorpe uh, and West Newton as is. Uh, and West Newton, as is David Bramhill, gave very compelling maths there, showing why there is enough upside potential. Now, it may not be that the field is as big as Bramhill hopes. It may be that the upside potential is not that large, but the potential is so huge that there has to be, surely, some material upside in the share price. Anyhow, that's my thoughts on Union Jack Oil. If you've enjoyed uh, today's edition of Share Profits Radio, wait for next week. I have just had it confirmed that Carson Block of Muddy Waters will be doing a detailed interview with me covering Burford, IQE, uh, and many other matters besides. Uh, I will have, I'll find another guest from somewhere uh, on the show and have a few thoughts of my own. Uh, that will be out sometime next week. If you've enjoyed this show and you've enjoyed uh, the repartee with Dominic Frisbee or the analysis of Union Jack and uh, Open Orphan, and you can't wait seven weeks for another show, well, uh, why not tune into Bearcast on Share Profits? You have to pay, but it only costs five ninety nine a month to access everything that appears on Share Profits. Our scoops on companies like Burford, IQE, uh, Quindell the other day, uh, 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 various, uh, a lot of very good work on Parkmead. So our scoops appear there, and every day there's a Bearcast, a podcast with myself, uh, some bad language, uh, and a lot of analysis and uh, breaking news. So uh, why not tune in to that? Cost five ninety nine a month, absolute bargain, less than a glass of wine uh, in a decent restaurant. 
and you get a whole month's access to share profits. Go on, sign up. You know it makes sense. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this edition of Share Profits Radio. I'll be back next week. Speak to you then. Man of